player assessment is the key to fantasy success. I'll talk about that and more with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 15th. It's show number 21 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal discussing player assessment based on line drive rates and on calendar year performance. We'll also talk about some closers and bullpen speculations about the Wilpons and the Mets, Mitch Hanniger, his Boons and Baines. It's a great long feature interview. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Dodgers right-hander Walker Bueller to the DL, Washington second baseman Daniel Murphy returning to action, and more from the senior circuit. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at the Detroit first base situation now that Miguel Cabrera is out for the year. Some major roster shuffling in Los Angeles in the follow-up to the Angels' Shohei Otani injury situation, and more from the American League. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Detroit right-hander Casey Mize, the first overall pick in the recent amateur draft. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston third baseman Randy Cesar. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Cubs left-hander Jose Quintana visiting St. Louis to face rookie right-hander Jack Flaherty and other weekend matchup situations. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about stats reaching stability. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about trying to get to 60 points. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Less than 100 games to go in the 2018 fantasy baseball season, so we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Michael Salfino, writer for Yahoo Sports, The Wall Street Journal, and other outlets. Michael Salfino, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. My pleasure to be here with you, Patrick. Before we get started, how many fantasy baseball leagues are you playing in this year, and how are you doing? I am playing in a uh, NL-only league for the first time that had a um, keeper component in it, like a three-year keeper thing. Um, I didn't really know whether to sort of go for it or, or play for this year. I sort of middled it, and I'm in you know fourth place, like within shouting distance if I could make some trades. The problem is, as you know, in a lot of these keeper formats, when you're new to a league, it's really hard to establish, to know the people well enough to actually make some of these uh, keeper trades that end up happening during the season when, when teams are trading like in-season assets. Which, uh, which gets frustrating because you're just like, hey, my keepers are better. I have, like, Fernando Tatis Jr. Nobody's giving me a call for, like, prospects that are well worse than that. Um, and then I'm in the uh, score – I'm in a score sheet league where I've had to battle injuries to Daniel Murphy and Justin Turner all year, so I'm, like, six games out of first place. But 
I, I kind of like my chances there. My staff is pretty good. I really like the score sheet format a lot. And in uh, friends and family, sort of middle of the pack. What I do in that league, since it's daily transactions and it's so time-consuming and I'm often on newspaper deadlines in the afternoon, is I have um, somebody help me with the daily transactions in that league. So um, I'm, I'm still involved, but not as involved as I would otherwise be. It's just really hard to, like, monitor the lineups when, you know, you're on deadline with the story and you have readbacks and stuff. I saw that you had a, a tweet about uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. He's really heating up, and with uh, the injury that we just heard about to another former Expo child of superstar, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is on the shelf for four weeks minimum with a knee problem. Has Fernando Tatis Jr. surpassed Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in your estimation? Oh, no, I don't think so. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is just like a complete freak. I mean, he looks like he's just just a stone lock to be a great MLB hitter. Tatis has holes in his swing as far as, like, the strikeout rate is high. But, you know, as a 19-year-old to have, uh, I think he's up to about an 870 OPS in, in AA, which is, so it's extremely impressive. And he offers uh, combo ability, I think more power than speed, but still um, at least uh, probably, you know, maybe like 35-20 uh, in terms of his uh, counting stats and homers and steals respectively. But the problem with him is you don't know – He's going to have to really cut down the strikeouts. In the last 10 games, he's done a really good job of that. He seems to be focusing on that more. He has more walks than Ks in the last 10 games. So, you know, usually you would discount samples of this size, but with a player of that age, you're just looking kind of for um, some progression that might uh, foreshadow a major league call-up. You're also very well known, Michael, as a uh, an analyst in NFL fantasy, and uh, I know a lot of my listeners say I don't want to hear about football, but I'm curious about football, so I'm just going to ask because it's my show and I can do what I want. Uh, NFL draft prep I'm seeing is really rolling. I'm seeing a ton of analysis and commentary from you and from others, and you're in the thick of it. What are the differences? And this is where I'm curious about the method between uh, projecting football player performance versus projecting baseball player performance because you do both well i i think it's it's like they're they're completely opposite of, of one another um so roughly speaking I, I mean i haven't really thought about it this this much until pretty much this second so i'm interested interested to see what what your opinion is but in baseball player projections it's it's like let's call it 80 85 percent true skill level of the player and then the rest is sort of their environment, you know, the team that they're on, that kind of stuff. Um, but in football, it's, it's directly the opposite. So true skill level is something that's, that's um, uh, not really as pressing a concern as the environment and the coach and the offensive system in which the player finds himself. Obviously, true skill level is important in terms of getting the starting job. But with a lot of positions, especially running back, which is you know the most important position probably in fantasy football, once a guy is elevated to the starting role, we just kind of look at the team. We're not really trying to deign uh, how good a running back that player is because it's almost impossible to tell when you look at things like the combine, uh, college performance, uh, even the more advanced stats like market share in college. Uh, for, for any of the positions, even the quarterback position, which is the most, if there is a position in football that has a true skill level, we would say it was quarterback. But the difference between playing on Saturday and Sunday is, is just enormous. The chasm there is greater than any um, you know, minor league level to major league level. 
When I was thinking about this question, uh, the, the uh, challenges in in uh, valuing football players, the first thing that jumped to my mind uh, relative to baseball players is with baseball players, we have a much longer track record usually and much larger sample sizes. You know, we know from 600 or 1,000 minor league plate appearances that this guy can do a certain level of performance or he's thrown, uh, you know, 3,000 pitches in the minor leagues. We have a pretty good idea at least of a baseline, whereas in football, even though they, uh, the best players have a lot of plays under their belts, it's a little more difficult first of all, it seems to me, to isolate their performance in a play and, and separate it out from, as you said, from the team environment. But second of all, there's just not a lot of it. Yeah, but even when there is uh, enough of a sample, uh, at least to, um, I don't think it takes a tremendous sample to get a sense, for example, of whether or not a rookie quarterback is going to be uh, somebody who is who is uh, above average, let's, let's call it. it might be, uh, you might need a bigger sample to know the degree to which but if you're just asking sort of the binary question, uh, especially in a year like we have this year with so many rookie quarterbacks, uh, yes or no, is this guy going to be above or below the line? I think you only really need about 400 passing attempts to, to kind of really get a good sense to have almost like a 80 85% confidence level about that quarterback at that point. Um, now how you sort of slice up those 400 attempts is uh, could, could be interesting. Uh, um, but it's usually about you know, 16 games, 20 at the most. Um, but in, in baseball, the thing that we get is not only, it's not so much the sample size, in my opinion, it's more that every statistic that you have is a product of the one-on-one battle between hitter and pitcher. Versus a football player whose every statistic is based on right guard versus nose tackle, uh, left tackle versus uh, rush end, all of these things uh, combine in. I, I see that point really clearly as well. Uh, I don't play NFL fantasy myself, but I'm struck that there seem to be many more rule sets than we have in baseball, where almost everybody's playing points, leagues, or uh, roto categories that we're familiar with in 5x5. Five five. How does the wide range of scoring systems in fantasy football affect the ability of analysts like you to accurately rate and rank the players who are going to be drafted? Well, it used to be that as much emphasis as we gave like the point per reception formats, which is really really in football what it comes down to is uh, the the big the big number one question you have to ask somebody who's asking you a question about ranking players is do you play in a point per reception league? or some variation of it, whether it's half point, three-quarters of a point, or do you play in standard scoring, which is basically just yards and touchdowns. And once they uh, answer that question, you could have a pretty good sense of, of uh, how to give them advice. Um, but it's not really that many players that are, that are severely impacted by that change in scoring. Um, I mean, it, it, is, it is significant, but it's not, it's not like it completely alters the entire fantasy landscape. I would say that it probably impacts maybe, um, you know, significantly like 30% of the wide receivers and maybe uh, 20% of the running backs. Um, so you need to know it. But, but other than that, there's really not that many things. You know, only, you know there's some, some leagues have interception taxes, and those taxes can vary. Uh, for example, ESPN, I think, is two points per, per interception, where Yahoo is one point. Um, and the other thing is points per touchdown pass, but most of those leagues are four. So what I used to do is I used to assume 
standard. Um, now I'm assuming PPR. I, I think the numbers are kind of catching up where, where you can safely assume if somebody doesn't say anything that they're playing a PPR league. All of those scoring systems, it always struck me that they put a lot of emphasis on running backs when quarterback is the most important position on the field, and that always struck me as a little weird. And we talked about quarterbacks a second ago and how do you look at a, at the rookie crop and say this guy's more likely than that guy to be successful. But we had four terrific uh, quarterbacks taken in the first round this year. Baker Mayfield got taken first overall by Cleveland, and of course with Cleveland's track record, that's possibly a bad sign. But Sam Darnold and the two Josses, Joss Allen, and Josh Rosen. When you looked at these guys, Michael, who did you think has the best chance of being an impact player right out of the gate? Well, you know, I think Mayfield is the safest projection because he's been so accurate in college. Um, but my view, really, I was kind of agnostic about it. I just felt that uh, um, in, in talking, I talked to uh, Bill Parcells prior to the draft about about the, the draft prospects and what he said, and, and I totally agree with this. Uh, obviously, you know, if Parcel says it, it's probably something you should agree with. But, but um, basically he said that so much of, of a player's success, especially at the quarterback position when they're drafted into the league, is whether the team has a vision for the player. In other words, like, there are things that every prospect of, of the caliber of the four that you mentioned can do well. Is the team going to put that player in a position to do those things, to express that talent, to make the transition easier? So he said that a lot of things that we chalk up to um, player failures are really coaching failures. And he said most actual, uh, most of the quarterback bust can be attributed more to coaching failure than to prospect failure. And really, you could uh, you could argue that if it's a coaching failure, it might also be a front office failure in that maybe they drafted a a guy who's just a poor fit with what they were what they were trying to do without him. You know what I mean? Yes. And the thing is, like once you get a player, uh, for example, you you want to take some Baker Mayfield concepts from from that Oklahoma offense, where so many plays were were you know, deceptive or had almost like a gadget uh, component to them. And you want to integrate those things into your offense. Like, why draft Baker Mayfield and then make him a p- conventional pocket passer taking snaps from center? That, that would seem to be stupid. So time will tell whether or not teams are going to uh, alter their approach. You know, the Jets with Darnold, he's more of a, um, a motion quarterback. He's really good throwing on the run. So you want to have some of those run-pass option plays as, as a, uh, a component, a focal point to your offense. You know, if you're drafting Josh Allen, who's more of a conventional pocket passer, that's totally different. So uh, that's another thing that we don't really see in baseball. <laughs> like, we're not, you know, the one thing maybe is if you have a, a guy who's a good base dealer, you want the, the team to want to steal bases. But other than that, there's really not many things that, you know, are where we can blame the manager beyond actual playing time for a player not performing. And last football-related question. I know you live there in the New York area. There was a lot of controversy or discussion about the fact that the uh, Giants decided not to uh, line up their replacement for for uh, Eli Manning just yet. They're going to roll those dice, and they went with Saquon Barkley, the running back out of Penn State, instead. What did you think of that move, and do you think Eli's ready to go in there for another couple of years? Well, I was all over Twitter saying that – Barkley was definitely, they were definitely not going to be taking a, a quarterback because you don't keep Eli Manning and then 
um, draft a quarterback. It just makes no sense at all. Like something like that had never been done before in, in NFL history. I wrote about it for 538, um, uh, well in advance of the draft. Uh, but I also believe that the Giants were foolish and just not. Uh, it was the perfect opportunity, similar to what the Colts had once upon a time with uh, um, Peyton, Peyton Manning, man, where they yeah. were just like, look, you know, we love you. You'll always be a part of this franchise, uh, but this is our chance to build for the future, so we're going to grant you, you, you uh, your release, and we wish you the best. And then they drafted Andrew Luck. So, you know, I think the Giants should have, uh, and obviously Eli Manning is much different than Peyton Manning in terms of his, his performance uh, the past few years actually warranted him being released. It wasn't even so much let's build for the future because this is a, a unique opportunity for us. It was, it was more related, I think, fairly to his decline in performance of late. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, believe it or not. I'm Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports. And, uh, Michael, let's get back to baseball. You have a regular fantasy baseball column at the Roto Arcade, a blog at Yahoo Sports. Uh, You recently discussed some potential buys and sells for 2018, and you based your decision-making and analysis on line drive rates. Why did you choose line drive rates? Well, usually I use well-hit average. I get my stats from um, Inside Edge on this. And I like their well-hit average stat, not so much because they use the video scouts versus the algorithm. It's not really a function of that so much as I like that well-hit average includes strikeouts. Uh, to me, like if you're not if you're if you're striking out, that should definitely count against your well-hit average. So um, I prefer that stat. But since I use it so much, I wanted to use something that um, would eliminate ground balls because there are a lot of ground ball hitters who um, have a, a really good well-hit average, but they're hitting grounders uh, well, and that obviously has less value for us in fantasy. So I thought line, drives rate might, line drive rate might, might give us a little bit of a better um, uh, view of, of the guys who, who might be um, unlucky or, or lucky in terms of their current level of performance. Now, the thing is, you know, Line drives are really good in that 70% of hits, as you know. Uh, uh, 75% of line drives are hits, but the problem is that only about 15% of homers, I think, are line drives. So that's the trade-off that you have to kind of make there. That said, in my own experience, I've looked at the uh, uh, a similar sort of measure in my research, which is to take every outcome at, at a plate appearance level, uh, including soft hit grounder, medium hit grounder, hard hit grounder, all the way through the trajectories and the hardness of hit combined, and put them out there as percentages, and I think pretty much accomplishing what you were doing here as well. And what I found was if a guy hits a lot of line drives, most of the guys anyways who have a lot of hard hit line drives also have a, a fairly good uh, success hitting home runs. You would think that that would be the case. It, it, makes, it makes sense. Um, but there are some, some players who, who are more extreme fly ball hitters that may be hitting fly balls well and not getting them to count as line drives. I think that is a, a little bit of a problem at the bottom of the rankings in the line drive stat, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, I guess. But, um, uh, you, you know, so, so there's, no, there's no one thing that is, uh, uh, you know, perfect. Basically, like, these are just tools in the toolbox. But what I try to do with each column is talk about one stat at a time. 
You noted that Joey Votto and Freddie Freeman have uh, deservedly earned reputations for generating line drives, and I believe they're pretty close to the top of the table this year again. But you also unearthed some hidden gems in San Francisco who are right up there with those two line drive artists. Who are the three giants who are line drive giants? Yeah, I was very surprised. I would not have expected three giants to be in the top ten in line drive rate, but um, it was Crawford, Belt, and McCutcheon. And McCutcheon would be the get here since his average is unusually low given his line drive frequency. Um, and plus, McCutcheon's well hit average, which again includes strikeouts, so that's not really an issue here, is 182, which is well above the league average rate of 155, according to Inside Edge. So um, Crawford has been on fire right now. I can't, you know, it's, it's hard to even like say, oh, go get Crawford. I mean, he should be available in zero leagues. I think he's hitting like well over. Uh, 400 since May 1st, so he got off to that really slow start. But um, and you know, Belt is having the year that I think all of the Belt believers have um, kind of been banking on for all these years, and now he's finally <laughs> doing it. I wonder, Michael, did you happen to notice whether Crawford's line drive numbers jumped up at the same time on May 1st as uh, the rest of his performance, or was he sneakily hitting them and not just get just not getting the results in the early going? That's a really good question. I don't know because, unfortunately, I don't have splits for the line drive data, but I would be very interested to know if that was the case. You know, Crawford, I think, is somebody who we who we have thought of as a um, a good real-life hitter who is obviously negative impacted, uh, negatively impacted by his environment. He's one of those rare players that were, uh, uh, you, you know, that when we were talking about before where environment isn't that much of a factor, Pac Bell is one of those parks where where you actually do have to maybe consider that a little bit more than the base rate in terms of projecting players. So, um, I, you know, I just – so I think that he's a guy that has always been a value but for the people who want to wait out the position, um, and, and he would be like a top choice of – you know, I call him like so, sort of a Scott Pianowski all-star. You know, our mutual friend Scott Pianowski sure. likes those – those like sort of boring value plays uh, that had been Crawford previously, but he's been far from boring since May 1st. Another guy you identified as a, as a potential buy is Toronto outfielder Kevin Pillar. He's long acclaimed for his defensive prowess, but he's never been that productive as a fantasy hitter. You argue he deserves some consideration for his hitting this year because of line drives. What's the Pillar story? Well, it's interesting. You know, our mutual friend, the, the late Steve Moyer, um, had a thing called, he, he viewed certain players as being sabermetric darlings and other players as, as being sort of, um, you know, reviled by the sabermetric community. So Pilar has been one of those players, like if you want to go anti-sabermetric, he was always a guy that you would be able to get because his on-base percentage is just so bad, even in leagues where you're not counting on-base percentage as as a statistic, a lot of people would kind of, you know, the smarter people who are more analytics-driven would kind of stay away from Pilar. Um, but his line drive rate this year suggests that he should have uh, a much higher average. I think he's hitting in, like, the 260s right now, um, at least at the time when, when I wrote that piece. Um, but the, the reason why I think his batting average is depressed, given that line drive rate, is he's also an extreme fly ball hitter. So um, I think it would be reasonable to expect a little bit more power going forward. He, he's only on pace for about the same number of homers that he had last year, but I note that his isolated slugging is a career high and nearly 200. And usually, you know, that's in a range where we could expect 
a homer rate uh, for the season uh, in the 20, uh, at least in the 20 range, even 25 homers. So, so um, even if, even if his isolated slugging stays at like 180 or so where it is now, I think that he's a pretty decent bet to surprise in the, in the power category going forward. And plus he obviously offers some base stealing ability as well. Yeah, as we speak, he's at nine stolen bases. He had 15 all of last year, and I think he's only about maybe 35 or 40% of his way to his plate appearance total from last year. And he plays all the time. I mean, he's a, he's a very dependable plate appearance guy because the team likes his defense, obviously, and he doesn't get hurt, uh, touch wood. And on the home run side, he's almost halfway to last year's total and well short of halfway to last year's plate appearance total. I think you're right. I think there's some room for growth here in – and the doubles are way up as well. Yes, he's past halfway to that uh, total as well. Uh, yes, I, I, I think Kevin Pillar's a guy who, of course, is going to be hard to pry him away from somebody's roster. I'm sure he's rostered in most leagues, but maybe you can play up the uh, find the a guy in your league who's not a a fan of Pilar for whatever reason and maybe pry him away. And Pilar is one of those players that can definitely be on a team. Uh, can definitely have an owner who doesn't really like him that much. You know what I mean? Like he might be a guy that somebody just sort of settled for, right? A late, late, later round guy, and you say, "Oh, I need a f- outfielder. I'll just grab him. I guess maybe get some bags." He has played a lot better this year. I have to say, I, I am a little worried about the fly ball percentage, but uh, he's moving it towards line drives, as you say. That makes a huge difference for a guy who hits like he does. Uh, Pittsburgh picked up third baseman Colin Moran in the Garrett Cole deal, and you say Moran is also a rosterable guy because of his line drive profile that is right up there with a perennial superstar. What's Moran's deal? He's one of the oddities in that he has a high line drive rate but a low well hit rate. He was like I think 17th when I did the stat. I think he's still in the top 20. Um, I, I, that's a function of line drives only being batted balls while well hit is all at bat. So I like Moran to start the year, and he's been okay to mildly disappointing, I think. But I'm I'm still recommending that he's that he uh, is more widely owned. Uh, he's an extreme fly ball hitter, which we like. Uh, that continues a trend from last year that he started focusing on in the minors. He had a very brief uh, major league um, stint last year before he got injured. Uh, his power's been weak, though. Like, look, at, I think he's 6.6% home runs to five ball, but I think he can come close to doubling that in the second half, um, which, uh, again, even if he doubles that rate, that's barely above average in home runs to five ball. Uh, and this is a former six overall pick who's six foot four. So I think 15 to 18 homers going forward, health permitting, given the line drive rate and his and his size and some of the power that he displayed finally last year is not uh, out of the question. I, I I think he probably had like maybe like a 40 percent chance of that. When you look at a guy like Moran, uh, Michael, and his line drive rate has creeped up over 30%, which is really quite high by any uh, ball player standards, do you start thinking to yourself, well, maybe this has to regress a little bit back towards the sort of mid to lower 20s that is more, more common across the game? Or are there players who can maintain a, a much higher line drive rate as we've seen with players who are capable, for instance, of maintaining much higher than normal uh, hard hit rates? Well, I think his case to walks are, are pretty attractive, too, if I recall correctly. Um, and and he, he does have the draft pedigree. Draft order in, in baseball is uh, a, a reliable predictor of major league success. It's not like the only thing to think about, but it's important to consider. Uh, so a lot of times you want to look at players who are high picks, who have disappointed, 
and who seem to be uh, doing something finally. Like, they might be better bets to actually uh, have this, like, sort of like Yonder Alonso last year, where, where maybe that, what you're seeing presently, is their true skill level and not really what we had seen in the past. So um, I, just, I just think that, that um, he, he's a, he's, if he does regress a little bit in the line drive rate, I think given his fly ball prowess that he'll, he'll still probably hit more homers. So I think overall the regression picture for Moran is going to accrue in his favor. And he should be, I think he's only like 10% owned in Yahoo. So he's, uh, to me, like he's, He's a guy who is, I'd have no problem having him as my corner in a 12-team league going forward. And uh, the a guy I was referring to a moment ago is uh, Jose Altuve has a 30% line drive rate, which means that, at least for now, Colin Moran is certainly holding his own in that department. Uh, you had a couple of first basemen way down at the bottom of your line drive rankings. Take us through those two guys. Yeah, Bellinger and, and uh, Santana. Um, they're so disappointing. I really believed in Bellinger, and I still do. I think this is a young player struggling and changing some things on the fly. And uh, you can't blame a, a hitter for doing that. I mean, you can't have a reputation where you're not going to listen to coaches. Uh, but I wish hitters would be more stubborn and just accept the inevitable variance. And I wish teams were just a little bit more sophisticated and, and just understanding that you don't have to completely re-engineer a player's swing if they're in a prolonged slump, that this is just something that happens no matter who the hitter is. What about Carlos Santana? Well, you know, Santana is interesting in that uh, I, I think it sort of explains a little bit of his batting average disappointment. I think he, he hits a lot of, um, you know, his power is not, is, is not epic, so he's a, and he's an extreme fly ball hitter. So even given the relatively tight uh, walks and, and um, strikeouts and, and the fact that the strikeouts aren't even really that high, you would expect a higher batting average, but I think Santana is just one of those guys that's always going to disappoint in batting average because he's just kind of, um, you know, his game is not is 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 one that's going to naturally, I think, depress his batting average. I know you're a Mets fan and you look at the team a lot. And on Twitter, you've been a pretty solid Michael Conforto supporter. It must have pained you to report where Michael Conforto stands on that line drive list. Yeah, he was low, um, and and the Mets believed in him less than the than I think the Dodgers believe in Bellinger, and both of those guys are rumored to maybe be candidates to be sent down. So, um, but Conforto still has a 120 OPS plus for his career. Uh, I think the issue with Conforto, and I've talked to some players about this, and I've been warned that this is a big factor that I should consider. And rankings. I don't really have Conforto anywhere this year, largely because of this, where um, the, the issue is that when you miss the entire offseason, even though you're not expected to miss games during the season, your entire approach to preparation is thrown off. So you're a candidate, I think, for, uh, or according to the players that I've spoken to, you're, you're more of a candidate to have um, a slow start or a disappointing year because you just didn't get the work that, you're, that you normally get, you know, since baseball now is a year-round sport. In my Master Notes May quiz, Michael, I had a question about uh, MVP candidate in April who was last in baseball in May by OPS+. And I noticed that you have Didi Gregorius down near the bottom of your line drive list as well. What do you see is going on with Didi Gregorius, these highs and lows? He's 
got a little homer happy. I think that happened with Conforto, too. Like, if you look, I think Conforto last year might have been like 19% home runs to fly ball. That's, that's probably not a sustainable rate for him. Uh, so he might be, you know, trying to, uh, you know, give a little, little bit more of the old steroid jerk and, uh, you know, hurting himself that way since that's not his game. And I think D.D. Gregorius, too, is, is a player who is an extreme fly ball hitter now, and that trend is, is, is accelerating. And that's a good thing, I think, in, in some ways. Uh, when, you, when you look at the modern analytics with the hit trajectory, that's something that, that uh, a lot of uh, analysts prize, guys actually altering their, their hit trajectory to get more fly balls. But I think it's player-specific. So is Gregorius the type of hitter that you want to be an extreme ground ball, uh, fly ball hitter, or is he the kind of hitter that you want to be more of a line drive hitter? So um, I think Gregorius is a 25-homer hitter who's trying to be a 40-home run hitter, and the power isn't pronounced enough for him to uh, hit as many fly balls as he's hitting. So he's just kind of leading the league right now in cans of corn. Didi Gregorius' uh, teammate Gary Sanchez also not doing much in way of lining the ball. Uh, what's going on with the Sanchez? That's a guy that should be hitting fly balls, and he does. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a big power spike coming from him. Um, he's a guy that did a little bit better when I actually did it in the year-to-year, uh, one-year stats. He's not doing so well now because we're capturing more of his, of his bad performance than we just happened to. Uh, with those arbitrary endpoints when I did the analysis for Yahoo a few weeks ago. So um, uh, one of the things that's really odd about Sanchez, and these are the stats that I get from Inside Edge, which I just think is so great, and and, uh, I'm so glad to have them. But um, he said 61 ground balls and just five have been hits. So that's about nine hits less than expected. Uh, You know, obviously the shift is a factor, but, you know, he's... uh, He's not a player who, who should you think about that more with lefties, really. So um, I just think that that's kind of a fluke. And I think Sanchez is a good bet to hit 260, uh, 265 with, with uh, you know, epic power and one huge hot streak going forward. Something else about uh, Sanchez's batted ball profile that I w- I'd like your comment on, and that is uh, of the fly balls he hits, 20% of them this year have been infield fly balls, which is not a terrific marker of, uh, of uh, fly ball prowess and home run prowess uh, as a predictor. Are you at all worried about this uh, seemingly very high infield fly rate? Not really. I mean, uh, you know uh, as well as anybody, anybody who's played baseball at any level knows that a lot of times, like, you're, you're right on the pop-up. You're just missing the ball, like, by, what, you know, maybe a, a half an inch or something from, from, you know, turning that pop-up into a home run. So I would expect home run hitters who are really trying to elevate the ball to have a lot of pop-ups. Now, obviously, this is the extreme uh, edge of it, and you don't want to see that going forward. But I would almost look at that as a positive and just say that, you know, he's probably close on a lot of those pitches. And you mentioned uh, the article you did for Yahoo Sports, taking a look at a full season's worth of stats, incorporating this year by going back to the end of May last year and say, so here's six months' worth of stats. They just don't happen to start and end at the arbitrary endpoints we call the 2018 season or the 2017 season. When you looked at Sanchez in that full six-month uh, production, he actually came out looking pretty good. 
Yeah, I think he had like 41 homers and 120 RBIs or something at that point. Now, if you just rank by OPS plus, uh, I'm sorry, just by OPS, uh, we're not adjusting for the ballparks. He's 50th uh, right now. So I, I did I did him over just so, you know, this would be a little bit more useful. So this is from like June 10th to June 10th. Um, and the interesting players that I noted are um, uh, Chris Bryant is 10th, but I think the RBIs are really interesting with Brian. I think that's a story there. Bryce Harper, 14th. Uh, Rosario, 16th. Bellinger, 22nd. Okay, now this is the guy that is saying sending down to the minors. He's still 22nd in OPS over the last calendar year. Machado is 26th, for example. Puig is 35th, which is higher than I thought. And um, Sanchez is actually just behind Matt Carpenter. And Carpenter's the guy that you know, might have more value going forward than we think as well. He's another guy who's been radically unlucky on ground balls. Like, he is, he is, his ground ball average, I think, is the worst in Major League Baseball. Um, so he might have a little bit more positive batting average regression going forward. And Jose Ramirez is third, and Francisco Lindor is, uh, is 30th. So I think, you know, I, we have to alter our view on, on, on who the, the best, fantasy asset is i think among those players where i think it's really dramatically flipped right now and it's ramirez significantly you also noted that the stolen base leader is rajai davis who stole another three in a game just last week but at the same time you said speed only guys like davis and cameron mabin and jose reyes and others have a problem because they're pretty much only speed only guys what's the problem with speed well you know since speed is not really steals are, are down since we're we're in this a horrible situation in baseball now where analytics have taken over to the point where teams all have the same sort of blueprint for how to play. And the game has become, um, very, uh, conformed and predictable. Like everybody's trying to play baseball the same way. Like at some point, even if that's the optimal way of playing, it no longer becomes optimal if everybody's doing it. So there's really no place for the guys like that in today's game. So the problem with those guys who are getting, some stolen bases is that uh, even if they happen to be getting them now is that they're just not getting enough playing time to give you anything in the other categories. Like it used to be that, okay, you're going to have to sacrifice the homers and the RBIs, but at least the guy would be playing, you know, now you're getting guys that are only playing a few days a week, even if they're stealing bases. On the other hand, with some of these guys, the uh, speed only guys, it might be a blessing if they're only playing like Rajay Davis is stealing, you know, five bases a week while he's only playing in two games because he's not killing you all the rest of the time on on his uh, batting average. Yeah, like it would be interesting. Like if Billy Hamilton were running wild um, when he plays, like it would be better than actually having to play Hamilton all the time, especially if you're in a league like the Yahoo leagues where you have daily transactions. That could become ideal, although you're giving yourself a pretty much a job every day where you're going to have to see if this is a day where Hamilton is in the lineup. So, um, you know, I'm just, I've never been a rabbit guy, to, to be honest with you. I've always tried to get the multidimensional players who give you a little bit of uh, uh, speed um, and, and, and without hurting you in the other categories, and I've tried to kind of stack those guys up a little bit that way, as opposed to going for the, the one huge stolen base guy. Um, I, I think it's an interesting question philosophically right now, whether or not those guys are more valuable given that there's less deals in the league to the extent that they even exist 
or whether they're less valuable. Where do you come down on that? Well, I, I think that nowadays, if you can find a guy or roster a guy like a Mike Trout, you happen to get first pick overall. He's sitting on 13 bags. He's probably good for 25, plus everything else he, he gives you is clearly going to be a huge advantage. I think the question, Michael, comes in a little later on in the draft, and at a certain point you might think, you know what I need here is stolen bases, and really the most valuable player you could have would be Billy Hamilton if all they ever did was pinch run him. But they don't, you know, so like... yeah. How many how many steals does he have this year? Like last time I looked, he was stuck on like eight. Is he is he has he had a recent? I don't think he's even really playing. They're playing Winker again. Yeah, Billy Hamilton has really been dragging, but of course he's playing so poorly in general. He's uh, up to ten stolen bases, but his on base percentage is still under three hundred. His batting average is under two fifty. Uh, I. I don't know what to make of Billy Hamilton, but 10 stolen bases I don't think is getting the job done. For somebody who drafts a Billy Hamilton, they'd be expecting he'd be at 25 by now. Yeah, and the thing about Hamilton is his his well-hit average, league average is 155. He's in the 20s. So um, he's like one. He's hitting the ball well one-seventh as often as about as like an average major league player. So, and I know our friend Gene McCaffrey says that you actually want Hamilton not hitting the ball well, so he can right. get out rounders. So I think that that's an interesting question. Plus, he bunts a lot, so that's obviously going to hit his average, hurt his average in that stat as well. Unless he could learn to bunt better, but I think they're wise to that trick as well. Uh, one last question about this before we move on, and and that is, you mentioned that the sabermetricians having taken over large swaths of the uh, strategic aspects of baseball decision-making. But isn't it the case that if somebody figures out a way to exploit uh, the perceived lack of value of stolen bases the way that uh, in Moneyball they did with uh, OBP back in the day and all of a sudden it works and everybody picks it up. Is it possible that somebody's going to look around and say, I'm going to rebuild the 85 Cardinals. I'm going to have a whole bunch of guys who can steal 75 bags. I don't need home runs and I'll, and I'll redesign my park. So it's just cavernous and have three, uh, three guys out there who can run it down. Somebody's got to move the fences back dramatically. That's, I think that team will have a tremendous advantage because, you know, even defense is being de-emphasized now. Like you saw, Seth Beer is a guy that, that I love as far as um, uh, a, a prospect and, and people who play in dynasty formats because the guy's going to be an elite hitter, but he's a guy that has virtually no base running or defensive ability. So, you know, and, and the Astros are like widely acknowledged to be the smartest team in baseball. So they're they're not making defense uh, much of a consideration at all, seemingly, in, in making that draft pick. So I, I think you would get a lot of there is some um, uh, value to be had in focusing on players who are more defensive oriented and who steal more bases. Those might those guys might be easier to get. And I think if you had a huge ballpark, you could really get an advantage in half of your games. And I'm talking like old school, like 440 feet to center, 360 right, yeah. down the line. I mean, wouldn't you love to see it? And put AstroTurf back. So, like, is the team going to go back to AstroTurf? Yeah, I, that I would not be uh, so optimistic about. Okay, now, now from, from a pure standpoint, it's a give and a take, right? We would hate that because, every, you know, anybody who loved baseball uh, hated AstroTurf. But 
a lot of the things that we loved about baseball that we didn't even realize that we loved, that we almost like made fun of a little bit, but we kind of miss them a little bit now. You know what I mean? Like the hit and run, the stolen base, like, you know, the, the teams like the, the 85 Cardinals. If that's a way to get those teams back, you know, would it be worth it? So in other words, the purists would be getting something back and losing something in that transaction. I don't think the question is going to be whether the purists like it. I don't think baseball uh, owners care much about what we think, frankly. But I, I can see that they're worried about the investment they make in players. And there's a lot of evidence now, Michael, that suggests uh, playing on artificial surfaces is just bad for player health and reduces longevity. And that may be something that stays the hand of owners. And it may even eventually become a bargaining issue because the players want their careers to last a good long time. And running around on a uh, carpet-covered parking lot is not the way to, to have that happen. I wonder if that's true, though, in baseball. Like, I could, definitely in football, for sure. I wonder if it's true in baseball that, that AstroTurf shortened careers. Now, there were certain players, once you had knee injuries, it was harder to play on AstroTurf. But I don't remember the injury argument with AstroTurf being uh, prominent back in the day. And now that might be selective on my part. One of the things I trust least about myself is my memory, yeah. or, or at least my perception of what I remember, because it's so selective. But was that was that your view? Was that something that people talked about with baseball player injuries on AstroTurf? Well, because I live near Toronto, we go to a lot of Toronto games. We watch a lot of Toronto games on TV, and it's something that comes up an awful lot of the time because they're one of the few remaining two, I think, that uh, that have an artificial surface. And the announcers are always talking about, especially when you listen to the visitor announcers, saying that such and such a player is not playing today. They're going to give him a rest because they don't want him out there running around on the artificial surface. And it's not just uh, running in the field like running down fly balls. It's running the bases. And every Everybody has to run the bases and running on that stuff. I've run on it and it's really tough on your uh, knees and ankles. And I'm slow. Wouldn't you be a little bit excited if, if we could have the 85 Cardinals back in baseball now? Oh, sure I would. I thought it was great fun to watch, and I and uh, it was so counterintuitive that he was doing then what he was doing then. It was it was brilliant, you know. And it's a uh, as I said, I think it's a way that somebody could exploit the undervalued light hitter who could really run and, and could really catch fly balls. And you know, you get yourself a team full of fly ball pitchers and 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 a gigantic ballpark, like you said, with a four hundred and forty five foot center field and three ninety five down the lines, and say here it is, hit it out. But you can't, you know. We'll just run it down. So it would be a lot of fun, and then have them have five guys on the roster who can steal sixty-five bases. You know, all of a sudden you can score runs without having home runs, and and if some if one team does it, they'll all pick it up to some extent or another. The eighty-five Cardinals would have run John Lester right out of baseball. I mean, they, <laughs> right, they would have yeah. stolen. There would have been a game where they stole like thirteen bases off Lester. Oh yeah, you can see that, and lots of others too. They would have made it so that Lester. Whatever yips he had would have become so pronounced after that, I don't even know if he would have been able to function. He would have had to get that fixed. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports. Uh, Michael, you discussed uh, closers in uh, at Yahoo Sports and the Roto Arcade who might be in trouble. Uh, also, some guys who might be worth speculating on as replacement closers. We'll talk about particular players in just a second. But first, what was your method for assessing closers who might be in trouble? Well, the problem is, like, sample size. So what I wanted to do is I, I wanted a performance stat that wasn't ERA because ERA, as we all know, is just a terrible um, stat for the small samples that we have right now for closers. Um, and I also wanted a dominance statistic. So what I settled on was just 
straight OPS allowed because, you know, I don't want to spend like 100 words in an article explaining what stat I'm using. So that's very simple. Everybody understands it. And then the dominant stat that I used was percentage of swings that miss. Not, you know, Fangraphs does it a little bit differently. So the stats that I get from Inside Edge are just a percentage of swings that miss. So that, those percentages tend to be higher. And then what I did merely was I just ranked, I ranked all, there were like 219 relievers. I ranked them uh, in each of the statistics. And then I just made an index where I added up the rankings and lower was better and, and higher was obviously worse. And using that method, uh, Shane Green of Detroit is the worst closer of the bunch, and yet here he is. He's seventh in Major League Baseball. He's got 15 saves, which is a respectable total. But since saves are the coinage of the fantasy category, and since Green has the gig, why should we bet on him losing the job? That's a very interesting question because um, I think that Green is clearly not that good, and, he, and I don't think he's good enough to be traded to a contender, You know, which is the fear that you have when you're a closer on a on a bad team, especially one who's, I think Green is like 30 years old, right? So you worry that that guy's going to get traded for, for some like B-level prospect, and then that guy would just become a middle reliever uh, on the contending team. I don't think Green is good enough for that. Like, I don't think any team would reasonably look at Green and say, oh, there's our, there's our bridge to our closer. Right. So he might be in that sweet spot of being good enough to close on a bad team but not good enough for anyone to actually want him. The problem that he has is that they have Joe Jimenez, who is um, uh, a guy who was groomed to be a closer, who's, who's pitching very well, who's performed very well in that, those same statistics, and um, who I think is reasonably the closer of the future. So they might want to get a look at that uh, at, at any point, even irrespective of the trade of Green. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Also, there's the possibility that more and more teams are going to just abandon the closer model altogether and go more with matchups and uh, some of the things we're already seeing here and there. Uh, I was wondering about your opinion of what they're doing in Houston, where they had Ken Giles, they made him the closer, and uh, now they seems like they're going out of their way to make sure that he doesn't get save opportunities. The last one or two went to Hector Rondon, I think. They've had uh, Davinsky in there getting some shots. McHugh's had some shots. Uh could this be that uh, one of the smarter organizations in the game is starting to look more at situational relief usage and those kinds of things, which could have an impact on fantasy baseball as well? I, I don't know if it's that or if they just don't really believe in Giles. I mean, they didn't believe in him last year in the playoffs. He's almost like, you know, the guy who's good enough to close during the regular season, but then in the playoffs you're going to want to have other options that you could put in there, like a Lance McCullers or, you know, whoever you're, whoever the guy is who's out of the rotation in the playoffs. And, and obviously some of these other relievers that you could kind of lean on maybe a little bit more. So I don't know if it's really like new age thinking on their part, because to me, for, for it to qualify as that, I think Giles would have to be widely acknowledged to be the best reliever in the bullpen who's not closing. And I don't think anybody thinks that Giles is. So they're almost going to a conventional approach. Which other closer versus potential closer combinations did your study reveal we should be watching? Well, you know, the Toronto situation that you're close to was interesting because Asuna really was very poor in these metrics even prior to his uh, uh, troubles uh, off the field. So, But there was nobody who was really stepping into uh, the 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 pen has, has performed overall so poorly that there was nobody that was an obvious candidate to step into that void. So 
the the guy who came the closest was O, but I don't know if if uh, if that's something he you know it, it wasn't like he was significantly better than even the the field. Okay, Michael, this has been fantastic as I expected. Can you stick around for uh, a little later on? We'll get you back in. We'll do part two. Sure, we'd love to. Michael Salfino writes for Yahoo Sports, The Wall Street Journal, and other outlets, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up next, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League on Baseball HQ Radio. There's a drive to right field and deep. Chris going back, away back. It's And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off it's the National League report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Big news out of uh, the San Francisco Giants organization. Uh, just the other night, Evan Longoria broke his hand. He was hit by Miami pitcher Dan Straley. Uh, Longoria goes to the DL while the team assesses the injury. Rob Carroll covers the Giants for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Let's start with the obvious question. How long is uh, Evan Longoria likely to be out of the lineup? Well, for right now, the preliminary diagnosis was a fractured fifth metacarpal of his left hand. That's the lower bone of the pinky finger and doctors are weighing the options, but it seems reasonable for now to expect him to miss at least a month, uh, and we will adjust playing time expectations as we learn more. Longoria got off to a slow start, but had gotten things rolling, was on pace for a fairly typical Longoria season, 20 home runs, 75 RBIs, 260 batting average, and that injury is really a bolt of lightning. I mean, Longoria had averaged 160 games and 620 at-bats per season since 2013, so he's not a guy who gets injured easily. What will the Giants do with Evan Longoria on the shelf? Well, both Alan Hansen and Pablo Sandoval should see plenty of action at third base while Longoria is mending. Hansen has been especially hot uh, despite his own DL stint with a hamstring strain. He's at 355 and 62 at bats during May and June uh, with a lot of pop, 191 PX, so he's been hitting very, very well. Sandoval has been filling in at first base while Brandon Belt recovers from his appendectomy and he has put himself back in the Giants' good graces with some versatility and some production. Four home runs, 21 RBIs, uh, 271 batting average, and 118 at-bats, uh, despite his uh, uncharacteristic troublemaking contact. So these are fairly short samples, and neither of these players appears to be in Evan Longoria's class, Nick, but uh, they both might offer some value in deep leagues at least. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, they're the kind of thing, and, you know, Hanson especially, I, I've, I've had him on a roster, and since he's been back from the DL, he's, he's only been showing up as a pinch hitter, and then once in a while he'll get a start. So uh, he's been playing very well. He'll get more playing time. And Sandoval, as we said, is uh, is doing okay for now, but I, I'm always suspicious of him, given what's happened over the past few years. In Washington, some good injury news for a change. Uh, second baseman Daniel Murphy returned to the lineup. What's the effect on the roster in Washington? He was in the lineup on June the 12th as the DH in Yankee Stadium. Uh, the expectation is that he'll still need some days off, and so we've only reinstated some of his projected playing time. Uh, assuming he's healthy, he's a must-start. He's returned double-digit value every year since 2011, including a $33 value in 2016 and $27 in 2017 in standard 5x5 leagues. Uh, Adrian Sanchez will option to AAA to make room for Murphy. Uh, he was 1-for-9 in his latest stint with the Nationals and is only 4-for-23 so far in 2018. Yeah, it's a no-brainer to get Daniel Murphy back in your lineup if you happen to have him on your fantasy roster. It 
I'm just curious, Nick, what you think of Daniel Murphy. He's been something of an injury lightning rod. Uh, how much would you trust him, and how much would you be tempted to maybe offer him around your league to see if you could get something a little more reliable? Yeah, I think I might be tempted to offer him around because the injury. You know, there, there was a, a a thing that we said at Baseball HQ a long time ago, and that is that is chronically injured guys never get healthy, and I think that holds true. So uh, I. You know, you never know. You may see another DL stand coming up before too long, and I think I would offer him around while he's healthy and while he seems valuable. Atlanta Braves right-hander Michael Soroka had a shoulder problem. He was officially reinstated from the DL on Wednesday. Atlanta designated right-hander Luke Jackson for assignment. Uh, Phil Hertz covers Atlanta for playing time today. What are the roster effects here with the return of Michael Soroka, a good Canadian kid I should point out? Yeah, he's been pitching decently before hitting the DL. He had three starts, PQS ratings of two, one, and three. Uh, the one uh, against San Francisco, but he had a, a 3.77 XERA, 120 BPV in those starts, and that's really very, very good. Uh, and he seemed maybe a little stronger in his first game back. He had a no-hitter through six innings, left after 6.1 innings with uh, having given up only one single. So uh, I like Michael Soroka. I think he's, a, he's someone that's uh, worth rostering if he's if he's free in your league. You mentioned 120 BPV. That's a base performance value. It's kind of a combination of all the metrics that Baseball HQ applies to to ball players. Meanwhile, what happens to Luke Jackson? Well, Luke Jackson actually picks pretty decently in relief for Atlanta. Had nine strikeouts in 5.1 innings, uh, 3.48 XERA, but also had issued four walks. He'll probably wind up with the minors, but could be claimed by another team. Uh, not a ton of fantasy value either way, except in very, very deep league formats. Nick, the L.A. Dodgers have really been snake bit by injuries this season. It, it seems that you and I are talking every week about another Dodger player hitting the DL, and it seems especially true for pitchers. Their rotation has been a, a walking disaster. And right on cue, Walker Bueller, who came up as a replacement for an injured pitcher, goes to the D- 10-day DL himself with a rib injury. Our HQ Radio colleague Jock Thompson moonlights covering the Dodgers for playing time today. So what's going to happen in Los Angeles with Walker Bueller, the latest float in the injury parade? There was no immediate word on how long Bueller might be out, so we'll, we'll stay cautious for now and estimate, uh, in, in estimating a return. Uh, in the meantime, the Dodgers recalled Caleb Ferguson to take Bueller's roster spot. He made his second ever Major League start on Tuesday. Versus Texas, four innings, two earned runs, three strikeouts, two walks. Uh, not a really auspicious start, but actually an improvement over his first start, uh, of which he went, went an inning in the third and allowed four runs against Pittsburgh a week ago. And we have no idea as to whether he might get more opportunities, but the Dodgers are really running out of healthy bodies in their rotation and, and, and starters. I, uh, with Kitamaeda's projected return on Wednesday, June 12th, the immediate rotation is Alex Wood, Ross Stripling, Ferguson, Maeda, and to be determined. And if you own uh, Dodger pitchers, consult uh, your MLB transaction notification services for changes. We're just struggling trying to make some sense of the projections at the moment. And you know, when you were reading through that uh, that list of the rotation, I thought, that TBD sounds like he might be better than Caleb Ferguson. Yeah, he might indeed. You know, TBD might be a guy to stick in there uh, when, when it, his time comes up. The Mets got some terrible news, Nick, with the latest DL assignment of Noah Syndergaard a while back, but they've had a nice surprise with right-hander Seth Lugo, who has been pitching lights out in Syndergaard's place. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. What is going on with Seth Lugo? Well, Seth Seth Lugo has been very well this season. Uh, 1.77 ERA, 0.85 whip, 47 strikeouts in 46 innings. Most of that's come out of the bullpen. But he's actually gotten even better over the last month. 1.79 
1.16 ERA, 0.60 whip, and a 47% ground ball rate. Uh, his skills have been on par with his results. His command ratio is 25 strikeouts against one walk in his last 23 innings. A 2.43 XERA, a 188 base performance value. Uh, amazing. As you said, most of his action this season has been out of the bullpen in New York, but he has had some starts. How's he looked uh, stepping out there as a starting pitcher? Well, you know, he's had two starts this year, and they're not the kind of starts you'd want to throw a guy right into. Uh, one against the Cubs and one against the Yankees, and he's actually looked very, very good. PQS 3 and a no decision against the Cubs, a PQS 4 against the Yankees. He got that win with six shutout innings, eight strikeouts with no walks, looking very comfortable as a starter and beginning to build up a pitch count. I think in that second start was up around 84 pitches, something like that. So beginning to get some, uh, to get stretched out a bit. Nick, in addition to covering the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio, you're also a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com. That's a really interesting tool uh, for subscribers to use. How does Lugo look as a matchup, say, in his next couple of starts? He looks very good as a matchup. I tend to score. We, we do an eight-day scan on the, in the matchups tables, uh, and uh, their guys are highlighted in green that are supposed to be strong starts. Lugo's got two starts in the next eight days, both of them highlighted in green. Uh, I spent a lot of time checking that table uh, and looking at, at who's uh, suddenly showing up with good matchups. Lugo could be a guy who's going to be heading up the, uh, up the charts if he stays in the rotation very long. I like that. He's going to be heading up the charts. It sounds like Cliff Richard or the Beatles or something. There you go. <laughs> Finally, Nick, in the speculator column, Ray Murphy was looking at some surging players and some fading players, but just over the last 30 days, and maybe some good news here for Dodgers fans, uh, Ray focused on the Dodgers first base, third base outfield uh, utility type guy, Max Muncy, who's really been surging. What did Ray have to say about Max Muncy? Well, Max Muncy, Ray called Muncy maybe the most unlikely breakout hitter of the season so far. We once rated him as a 6A prospect back in 2014. Uh, made himself a little more relevant last year by really raking in the PCL. But uh, as Ray noted, that raking is what any Twix 26-year-old ought to do in the PCL. But in this stint with the big club, he's walking, hitting a ton of fly balls, and really uh, adapting his skills to modern Major League Baseball environment. Right now, a 30% home run per fly rate, which that, that can't hold at all. And when that cools off, he could be at the risk of losing playing time in the crowded Dodgers outfield, first base, third base pit- picture but uh, has been smashing home runs one per game for the last week or so. Uh, the surge feels a, like, a little like a 21st century Kevin Moss situation with Muncy Stern Tedgels turned back into a pumpkin once the pitchers find the holes in his approach and the news gets around. But then again, you know, smart people were saying that about the same thing about Josh Donaldson, so you never know. It's an interesting uh, discussion to have, isn't it, Nick, that uh, we kind of tend to brand young players, especially if they don't do well, and we say, well, that we, we just write them off, and we don't ever give enough uh, allowance for the possibility that a, uh, a 22-year-old kid who struggles in, in Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball is hard. And maybe uh, when a guy comes back at age 25, 26, he's a little more physically mature, maybe a little more emotionally mature, and he steps in and he starts doing well, we immediately say, that's a fluke. But maybe it isn't always a fluke, and we need to be a little more open-minded about the possibility that as a player gets a little older and a little stronger, that maybe he gets a little better and it's for real. Yeah, you know, I think that's true. It's, you know, as a guy, especially when you get a guy in Major League Baseball, 26, 27, 28 years old, things could start to happen. I, I remember to take an analogy. My dad was a college wrestling coach, and 
We had a guy on the team that was just, really, I thought was just awful. Until suddenly his senior year, he started turning things around and, and doing amazing things. And I said to my dad one day, I said, what, what happened? And my dad said, well, first of all, he was long and gangly and he grew into his body. And secondly, he's got some experience now and he knows what to do. So, you know, that, that begins to make a difference. All right, Nick, uh, thanks very much. We talked about baseball. We talked about wrestling. Are you going to be watching any of the World Cup of Soccer, which started earlier this week? I, I might get around to that. I don't know. Lots lots going on. We've got a granddaughter visiting and uh, having a lot of fun with that. So uh, I don't know whether there'll be time for that or not. <laughs> and I'm going to guess the granddaughter, probably not a uh, Portugal fan. Uh, no, not not very, not much. Uh, so not so much. Or you can ask her, hey, do you want to watch Ronaldo? She'll, she'll look there at you. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com, director of news and analysis and a writer at the site, it's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD, how you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Uh, another regrettably big week in the injury scene is starting with really sad news in Detroit where the Tigers, and I guess we as fans and fantasy players, lost a future Hall of Famer, Miguel Cabrera, undergoing season-ending surgery. He ruptured the tendon in his left biceps on a swing. That sounds painful. And, Jock, it's just the latest in a string of injuries affecting Miguel Cabrera, really one of the dominant hitters of our era. Yeah, Cabrera really used to have that wonderful reliability uh, elite performance, but uh, that went by the boards last year thanks to that those two herniated discs he had. He, he, he started off better this year. He was at least hitting for average. The power was uh, a little MIA, but uh, he's been plagued by aches and pains before uh, this, this recent injury. He had, uh, uh, I guess, more back issues and a, and a hip issue and... Uh, uh, he, and now this, so it's it's hard hard to see where he goes from here. Well, let's talk about that, Jock. Uh, starting with the you're a keeper league guy, so how do you view Miguel Cabrera as we think about the longer term? Well, he signed for five more years, so the Tigers are obviously going to try to keep him as a regular. But there's going to be serious questions now on his ability to to fulfill that contract. And of course, if he if he can't, the Tigers are going to be on the hook unless they have some sort of insurance. Uh, in many ways, it's interesting. We were talking about Adrian Beltre last or last week or a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we talked about how Beltre uh, could still hit but couldn't hit for power, and his biggest issue is durability. It wouldn't be surprised me to see some version of Miguel Cabrera uh, like that uh, over these next three, four years. And uh, even his ability to play first base as as physically undemanding as the position is, could you think you could see Miguel Cabrera losing first base eligibility in the next year or two and being a DH only? Yeah, isn't, isn't Victor Martinez now um, in his last year? And uh, my guess is that they'll slide Miguel Cabrera over to, over to DH probably next year. Probably more important for most of our listeners, Jock, uh, the Tigers now have a gigantic hole at first base for this season. What are they going to do to fill the first base role for the rest of 2018? Well, John Hicks has been over there for the first few games that Cabrera's been out. He, he'd been splitting his time between backup uh, catcher and first base before this. He's shown decent power, and he has good surface stats, 296 batting average uh, to date. Uh, but that contact rate says it, it, that's not going to last with more exposure. Uh, 
utilities, Nico Goodrum and Ronnie Rodriguez are probably going to get some first base time. Goodrum has been surprisingly productive in a utility role to date. Uh, he's had some surprising pops, six home runs and speed, five steals, over 147 at-bats. But as with Hicks, his history and poor contact suggests these numbers are going to fade as the season go on. I, I'd say right now both these guys are flyers if you need help, but they're nothing to rely on. We had another sad story in Anaheim, this time with an exciting new player. The wannabe postseason contenders in Los Angeles took a double hit when they lost Shohei Otani to the DL. He's got a grade two sprain in his uh, collateral ligament in his throwing arm. That's a Tommy John-style injury. Let's start with uh, Shohei Otani, the pitcher. You covered this in playing time today and playing time tomorrow. Where does the Otani injury leave the Angels? Between a rock and a hard place, uh, really, uh, with regard to... um, um being a pitcher, I mean that six-man rotation is uh, is uh, pretty much by the boards right now because the Angels have have run out of pitchers. They've got Matt Shoemaker on the DL. They have uh, um, J.C. Ramirez. He's gone for the year. Um, um, I, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop on that. I think you've got uh, um, what's his name, John Lamb, who used to pitch for Cincinnati. He was a a, a decent prospect way back when. He's down there in Salt Lake City right now. Um, I think right now they have five five pitchers in the rotation, and we'll see where it goes. But it's it's not a great time in Anaheim right now. I've also heard some discussion uh, on the TV broadcast that the Angels might try to keep Otani on the roster this season for his hitting and, and just not have him pitch anymore. Uh, have you heard if there's anything to that? And if that's not the case, who's going to get Otani's at-bats? Yeah, that that's a real good question because I, obviously I'm not a medical uh, professional and I don't uh, – I don't know um, um, how how this injury might impact his hitting, but he was getting about fifty percent of the DH time uh, during the three days he hit in between uh, in between when he was pitching. Right now, uh, Jose Miguel Fernandez, uh, uh, an older Cuban import rookie, has taken his roster spot and most of his at bats. He's been pretty decent in the minors: uh, three twenty one batting average, uh, five twenty one slugging through five hundred forty six at bats over the last two years since he came over here. And his major league debut hasn't been bad. He's picked up five hits, I think, in his first twelve at bats. Uh, so he may not be overmatched by uh, major league pitching. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens if Otani comes back. What happens to his at bats? But um, at least the Angels have some interesting names fantasy wise that owners can look at. As a Jeffrey Marte owner, I was curious about what might go with him, but of course he's on the DL as well. Uh, and what do you hear about Jeffrey Marte and his chances of coming back relatively quickly and getting a few at-bats if he does? Yeah, I saw the Mar- Marte injury, and uh, it, it didn't look really good, um, um, but uh, it will be... Uh It'll be interesting. He's a right-handed hitter. He was off to a fast start. I think the I think the Angels would actually prefer to see what uh, what Fernandez could do right now. Well, we'll see what happens to um, to Marte. I'll tell you what. Uh, the Angels also recalled um, uh, a guy named uh, David Fletcher, and we've talked about him a lot at Baseball HQ. He was a guy who had very good contact and plate skills. Um, throughout his minor league career but not a lot of power and not a lot of batting average because of that this year completely different story his contact rate is actually up but he's hitting the ball with authority now we got to take that with a grain of salt because it is in Salt Lake uh, City um, which is a very good hitting venue along with the PCL but um, Fletcher was slugging almost 600 and he made his major league debut and he went three for four the other day and like I said his contact rate is way up I think his contact rate's almost 93 percent in the minors so um, I'm I'm kind of curious as to what he can do 
And if the Angels suddenly fall out of this race, uh, that's where it becomes interesting fantasy-wise because they've had kind of a minor league resurgence uh, there in Anaheim, and they've got some guys who are now in Salt Lake that they may want to take a look at in advance of the 2019 and 2020 seasons that uh, fantasy owners might want to keep track of. Well, speaking of uh, prospects and uh, possible rebuilding in Tampa, the Rays seem to have begun looking at 2019. They DFA'd first baseman Brad Miller and then sent him off to Milwaukee because they wanted to make room for the Major League debut of Jake Bowers, a top prospect we've talked about before. He now looks like he's going to be the everyday first baseman in Tampa. What do you think we have in, in Jake Bowers? Probably like Bowers more than more than a lot of people. Um, he 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 he's never put up great numbers in the minors. But keep in mind, this guy's only 22 years old right now, so he was pushed through the system pretty aggressively. He uh, he's been on top 100 prospect list for the past couple of seasons. He gets props for his swing and plate skills, particularly his uh, pitch recognition. Uh, yet he's only hit uh, what I think 27 homers combined over the past two years. In uh, in uh, well, let me see. Let me look at that. Um, uh, in 2016, six, 14 homers in Double A. 2017, 13 homers. He's hit about 270 at both stops. Um, this is a guy I think who still has some development le- uh, left. He's never going to be a big home run guy. Maybe 20 home run in his prime, but good glove, uh, double digit stolen bases, and he started out so far uh, pretty good in his MLB debut. I think uh, first 28 at bats, he's hitting around 280. Um, he's uh, he's hit a home run. He's hit a couple of doubles. Longer term, this is a guy who might be a better major league player number-wise than he was a minor league player. And I, and I don't think he's going to hurt you right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm something of a Jake Bowers fan. I am too, and uh, I don't put a lot of stock in my scouting ability or anything, but I do kind of like the way Jake Bowers looks on the field and especially in the batter's box. He just looks relaxed and he looks like he knows what he's doing. And and there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's something there's something to be said about poise. It's interesting you bring that up because I, I kind of look at a pitcher. I'm going to get off track just a little bit. Uh, uh, Ronaldo Lopez, the same way. Uh, his, his peripherals aren't great, but his poise really impresses me and the results he's gotten uh, to date, I don't, I don't think the two are necessarily unrelated. I don't either. Uh, just feeling confident out there, I think, is half the battle. No matter what uh, you're doing, I know baseball's hard, but uh, sometimes the weight of the situation can make it harder for people, or the ability to look past that and rely on your own confidence and your skills can really help. And I think in a lot of cases, that's something we need to pay a little more attention to. Uh, finally, in Minnesota, something of a surprise move, although this was something the Twins broadcasters had been discussing in games I was watching, the Twins optioned Miguel Sano, and not just to triple-A or double-A, all the way down to Fort Myers. That's their affiliate in the high-A Florida State League. I guess they're going to be trying to do some physical rehab and training and all that kind of stuff at the same time. Talk about this Miguel Sano situation and the ramifications for the Twins' big league lineup. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think Sano made the all-star team last year, but he's been awful ever since. Uh, I think he's hit uh, between the all-star break and now something like uh, 218 batting average, 289 on base, and 417 slugging, which surprised me when I saw it because home runs are his calling card. But he's had knee and weight issues, off-field problems. His notable patience uh, that served him well in in, in hunting uh, pitches to hit out of the park has disappeared. Now he's regularly chasing pitches out of the zone. Um, you can check his decline uh, in patience at Baseball HQ. I'm going to pull it up here because I'm curious. Yeah, last year his... Uh, he walked at 11% clip. This year it's down to 9%. Um, 
he needs to get right and uh and with the twins scuffling a little bit and now with joe mauer coming back this might be a, a really good move for uh uh, for them to see what they can do with him. Uh, Joe Maurer's on his way back from the DL. Eduardo Escobar had acquitted himself really well as a utility. He's going to take over at third base full-time. They're going to get Jorge Polanco back soon and Buxton back uh, by uh, early July, at least, like Polanco. So this makes some sense right now. It is a disappointment to Miguel Sano owners, though, that's for sure. Uh, Jock, thanks for helping us out again. We'll talk to you again in one week's time. Okay, PD, sounds good. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis. He writes regularly at the site, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute. Frequent flyer and pitcher matchups are all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Batting Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at batter splits with runners on and the bases empty. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Christopher Olson looks at the American League East, including the rise of Jake Bowers and Willie Adamas in Tampa, the Baltimore bullpen situation, Blake Swihart's paths to playing time in Boston, or lack of them, and more analysis from the American League East. And in The Big Hurt, injury analyst Matthew Cederholm looks at injuries befalling Shohei Otani, Steven Strasburg, Masahiro Tanaka, Justin Turner, and, unfortunately, many others. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And it's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Detroit right-hander Casey Mize, the first overall pick in the recent amateur draft, is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Detroit Tigers are more than a year into the rebuilding project, and this week they took a huge step in the right direction when they drafted Auburn ace Casey Mize with the first overall pick in the 2018 draft. The 21-year-old right-hander was a consensus top pick and could be in the majors by late 2019. Mize comes after hitters with an above-average 92-95 mile-an-hour two-seam fastball that tops out at 97 with good arm-side run and a good hard slider. His best offering is a plus-to-double-plus splitter that he will throw in any count with pinpoint control. The pitch serves as a changeup and is a true swing-and-miss offering. Mize pounds the zone and walked only 12 batters in 109 innings pitched while striking out 151. On the year, he's 10-5 with a 2.95 ERA and a 207 batting average against in the tough SEC. At 6'3", 210 pounds, Mize has good size but is fully mature and doesn't have much projection left, but his stuff is top-notch and his ability to pound the zone and induce weak contact gives him the potential to be a solid number two or even low-end number one starter in the very near future. Owners in mixed and AL-only keeper formats should roster Mize as quickly as possible as he has the stuff and command to be an impact starter. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Cleveland catcher Francisco Mejia, 
Los Angeles Angels shortstop prospect David Fletcher, Tampa first baseman Jake Bowers, and all the other recent call-ups. And Nick Richards has a look at players who'll top the hot prospect lists for next season. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in winning or losing your leagues. And BaseballHQ.com has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Houston third baseman Randy Cesar, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Going back way back to the August 5th, 2016 edition of Frequent Flyers, remember when we profiled a 20-year-old switch hitting catcher named Francisco Mejia, who was in the midst of an amazing 50-game hitting streak? Fast-forwarding back to 2018, we've identified another Frequent Flyer who is approaching Mejia-like minor league numbers, at least in terms of hitting streaks. That's right, 23-year-old Houston Astros third baseman, Randy Cesar has hit safely in 35 straight games dating back to May 5th where he went 2 for 4 versus San Antonio. In fact, Randy Cesar is currently batting 349 for AA Corpus Christi with 8 home runs and a 914 OPS. Have we mentioned that Randy Cesar batted 329 in April and has improved that average to 385 in May? Perhaps even more remarkable is that Randy Cesar has hit safely in 51 of his 57 games in 2018. Not bad. A career 275 hitter in the minors, Randy Cesar is often overlooked in discussions of top prospects. Plus, barring injury or some other unforeseen circumstance, Randy Cesar is probably blocked at third for the foreseeable future by Houston's Alex Bregman. In other words, the Astros have no reason to rush Randy Cesar's development. That's why Randy Cesar, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Of course, not many people would expect this pace to continue. Randy Cesar's batting average on balls in play is currently an extremely high 437 for 2018. But, at this point, it's a recognition of the possible breakout talent that counts, especially in Dynasty Leagues. Remember, Randy Cesar only needs to hit safely in 15 more games to tie Francisco Mejia's mark in 2016. That puts Randy Cesar on pace to tie Francisco Mejia by the end of June. Randy Cesar hits safely in 22 more consecutive games, he will break Joe DiMaggio's all-time 56-game hitting streak record set back in 1941. Records aside, despite a small two-month sample size, Randy Cesar has shown the ability to hit for average, as 297 batting average in 2017 fully supports this fact. Not to mention that his 283 batting average in 2016 shows a nice three-year upward progression from 283 in 2016 to 297 in 2017 to 349 in 2018. In other words... He just seems to be getting better and better. And so will your team when your team selects Randy Cesar, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. 
Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. Here with a scan of Cubs left-hander Jose Quintana in St. Louis to face rookie right-hander Jack Flaherty and other matchup situations this weekend is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. As usual, this weekend's marquee matchup is the only game for which both starting pitchers have matchup ratings in the strong start range of 0.5 or above. What's different is that this weekend's marquee matchup falls on Father's Day. And you don't have to go to the St. Louis Cardinals pitcher-friendly home park of Bush Stadium to celebrate. The arch-rival Chicago Cubs visit is scheduled for ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball broadcast. Northsider Southpaw Jose Quintana continues to claw his way back from a woeful first eight starts this season. Four of those outings were PQS disasters with two on the road, including one at St. Louis on May 4. But after notching three PQS doms in his past five starts, Quintana carries in the better overall matchup rating of 114. Of course, it helps that the Cubs come into town with the National League's best run differential at plus 90, while the Redbirds rank right in the middle at plus 20. Quintana's base performance value of 71 would be his lowest since his rookie season of 2012, though he does have a BPV of 98 in six starts over the past 31 days. During that time, Quintana has benefited from a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 76%, making his whip 119 despite a control rate of four walks per nine innings pitched. Quintana's expected ERA and ERA are both about 375. With a season-long dominance ratio of nine strikeouts per nine innings pitched, the component matchup ratings for Quintana reveal that his strengths in this matchup are a 152 for strikeouts and a 137 for whip. Quintana has just an 018 for win probability and a minus 006 for ERA. Rookie of the Year candidate Jack Flaherty will deal for the cards. He has an overall matchup rating of 073. BaseballHQ.com's Brandon Cruz completed a first impression analysis of Flaherty published on our site June 10. Cruz noted that Flaherty has the best BPV among St. Louis starters, now at 133, and the second best expected ERA, now at 347. Cruz concluded that Flaherty is, quote, well on his way to becoming a rising star in a deep Cardinals rotation, unquote. We would add that Flaherty has a whip of 109 and a command ratio of 4.4 strikeouts per walk that comes from a dominance rate of 9.5 strikeouts per nine and a control rate of 2.2 walks per nine. The component matchup ratings for Flaherty show that his strengths are a 135 in whip and an 089 in strikeouts, while his weaknesses are a minus 051 in win probability and a minus 117 in ERA. So look for both Quintana and Flaherty to help with whip and strikeouts, with Quintana more helpful in strikeouts, win probability, and ERA. Instead of our overall maximum and minimum matchup ratings this weekend, let's dig a little deeper into our component matchup ratings. Between Memorial Day and the All-Star break, we recommend fantasy owners concentrate on improving their ratio categories. So let's glance at the new ERA and WIP component ratings from our exclusive matchup rating system. You can use our ratio component ratings to great advantage over the next six weeks and beyond because there are some surprising counterintuitive moves to be made, especially if you need to be bold. 
After the All-Star break, we recommend padding your counting stats, and for that we have our component matchup ratings in strikeouts and wins. But getting back to the ERA and WHIP ratio component matchup ratings for this weekend, 14 starters have ERA component matchup ratings above 1, and 18 starters have WHIP component ratings above 1. Five starters appear on both lists. Dylan Bundy, Eduardo Rodriguez, Carlos Carrasco, Blaine Hardy, and Luis Severino. Blaine Hardy is the big surprise there. The 31-year-old Detroit Tigers lefty is making only his seventh Major League start. Scanning the ERA and WHIP component matchup ratings separately, we find even more surprises. The best ERA component matchup rating of the weekend is a whopping 327, and it belongs to none other than Alex Cobb. In WHIP, the even better component matchup rating of 331 is second best behind Max Scherzer. The runner-up is 28-year-old Dodgers breakout right-hander Ross Stripling. If your ratio categories need attention, study our component matchup ratings for ERA and WHIP. To recap our marquee matchup for this weekend, both Quintana and Flaherty should help with whip and strikeouts, with Quintana more helpful in strikeouts, win probability, and ERA. Check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick does our weekend pitcher matchups all during the season. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports, The Wall Street Journal, and other outlets. He's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. The pitch. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. Michael, welcome back. My pleasure. You tweeted uh, that today's fastest uh, fastball pitchers aren't any faster than yesterday's fastest fastball pitchers, and you say home runs aren't flying any farther either. Where's your evidence for this? Well, you know, I cited an article in in uh, Wired where they talked to a lot of the baseball physics people, and they were just like, look, we've reached, you know, there's more guys who throw harder now than there were in the past, but the hardest throwers of the past would be throwing pretty much just as hard as they are today. I, 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 I just implore everybody to watch a documentary called Fastball, and you can take, take it for, for wh- what you will. Most people just will reject the notion that Bob Feller uh, when you do the physics adjustment on the speed that he was recorded at, and Nolan Ryan, when you do the physics adjustment at the speed that he was recorded at, are, are throwing uh, slightly harder today than, than Chapman, for example. Okay, But uh, I think you should at least like expose yourself to that. And then the other question that I have is, you know, if we know Mickey Mantle hit the facade at Yankee Stadium. Like, you know, nobody's, nobody's and it's a different park now, obviously, but it's not like... We're seeing home runs hit into parts of ballparks that even existed at the time. Like, where, where's somebody hitting anything close to the red seat at Fenway Park? And then people will just be like, oh, that's just a made-up story. And it's like, well, it's not really a made-up story. I mean, the wind was blowing out that day, I think, 19 miles an hour. It's certainly possible. I mean, it's Ted Williams, for God's sake. Like, you know, we, we, know, where, we know Lou Brock 
hit a home run to dead center of the polo grounds, you know, one of three players ever, and that was 470 feet from home plate. How many home runs go 470 feet to dead center field today? How many home runs go 470 feet, period? Uh, we, we've got the StatCast data, and when I look at them, you'll see a, a long home run is usually more like 450. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that because we have access to these data, and uh, they talk about them a lot on TV, uh, exit velocities and, uh, and distances, people tend to think, wow, these balls are going farther than ever. And, I've, and of course, there was a lot of media narrative last year and the year before particularly about the the ball was juiced and the ball had changed and all this kind of stuff and it was they said the ball is going farther but i think from what i read and you can correct me if i'm wrong michael the ball was going about 5% farther which meant a 380 foot ball was sneaking over the fence where before it was on the warning track nobody was suggesting that it was going 475 feet routinely exactly so, and I'm sure if we did exit velocity data on, you know, going back to Babe Ruth, like, those guys were going to be the, the same as the best guys today. Like, to think that these players aren't transferable in baseball, that's the beauty of baseball. The geometry of baseball doesn't change. We don't have ground balls being hit to shortstop that guys are beating out because they're so fast now. Routine grounders, right? We don't have, you know, the, the basic geometry of baseball is pretty much the same. Like, it's a guy throwing a ball. He, he, the, the mechanics of how you pitch haven't changed that much. So I don't like it when people argue science with me and using the data like, oh, we're using lasers now. And, and you know, uh, obviously we have all of these advances and, and yada yada that are causing people to do better. But the, the basic, you know, evolutionary uh, aspect of the human anatomy has not changed to the point where over the course of 40 or 50 or even 75 years, that people are going to be able to throw much harder now. We have not, like, developed new muscles for throwing a baseball. So to say that, you know, the, the best players of the past wouldn't, wouldn't be the, uh, among the best players of today, in baseball specifically, I think is, is short-sighted. And if you want to use things like nutrition and, and other things that people are getting and advances in, like, uh, medicine – you know, I think it's only fair to just assume that those players would get those things today. So Sandy Koufax doesn't retire at age 30 today. Sandy Koufax gets his Tommy John ligament replaced and probably pitches for like six more years, probably five more years at, at a somewhat elite Sandy Koufax-ish level. So, and, and who knows how long he was pitching with that injury. So, you know, it's something that I'm kind of passionate about. Like, I think we need to respect the past a little bit more in baseball than we do. Yes, I, I've had these discussions with people, and and I think what you always have to point out is just because they couldn't measure pit, uh, pitchers and hitters in the 1950s the way we can now doesn't mean that they they didn't have miles per hour. You know, they had miles per hour, just better at counting them now. But uh, I had a friend whose father, when he was in the service in the Second World War, played baseball here in Canada, and they, they had a barnstorming team that went from base to base and played the local guys. This was a kind of a Canadian National Army thing. And one day they got into a, a an exhibition match with a team of GIs coming up from north uh, south of the border. And uh, Mr. Bradshaw got in there. He was the leadoff hitter and, and uh, fancied himself a pretty decent hitter, you know. And that's what he said. Uh, that's what he, he he said. He heard it. He didn't see it. And it was Bob Feller. And and there were there were films taken of Bob Feller. Ta and and I know that people have. You can count the frames, and divide by how many frames is in a second. And and it 
Yeah, exactly. And then once you know how many frames it took for the ball to get from his hand to home plate, you can just do a little bit of basic arithmetic and you can say that was a 103 mile an hour fastball. Exactly. And that's what the documentary showed. And the thing is, they used, they used uh, equipment from the military that was used to measure the velocity of artillery shells. Okay. Now, and then people are like, oh, that equipment, you're going to trust that. It's like, it's the military. If they were, you know, we, we split the atom not long after they measured Bob Feller's fastball velocity, I think they could handle it. You know, just have a little bit of respect. Plus, the physicists who were consulted for this, if those measurement tools were so crude, they would have said, oh, that's completely unreliable. But remember, they were measuring Feller at home plate at 98 miles an hour. That was as the ball crossed home plate. You do that today, these guys are losing 9% 9 to 10% of their velocity because we're measuring it right now the millisecond it leaves the hand at its absolute fastest point. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we don't give uh, past players their due. And again, I think a point you made earlier is really something important for us to repeat. There, There are more players who can do these tremendous feats of physical performance but that doesn't mean that the best players in the past couldn't do those feats of physical performance. We just have more of them now because of coaching and nutrition and sleep and all of these other kinds of things that allow the system to manufacture and maintain such players, but it doesn't mean they weren't there before. In fact, if anything, it's even more remarkable that they seem to get there despite not having all of these advantages. And, and you know what's interesting, too? Let's assume, I mean, if Bob Feller was recorded at home plate with the military equipment at 98 miles an hour, let's just assume that, that, that he was a 100-mile-an-hour pitcher, okay, conservatively. You know who owned Bob Feller, if you look at individual splits? Ted Williams. I'm pretty sure Ted Williams would have been okay today. Yes, I, I, I think so, too. Um, certainly my late father would have uh, agreed with you. Uh, he, he always insisted, because he was a, an airman, uh, of course, Ted Williams was a fighter pilot ace. He was uh, Gl John Glenn's wingman, actually, in uh, Korea, and uh, one of the finest uh, airborne fighter combat pilots the U.S. Air Force had ever seen. And my dad flew, and so I think he was biased. But, uh, yeah, Ted Williams could hit. <laughs> no doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> You've been quite outspoken, Michael, about the ownership group of the New York Mets, and specifically you called it the scandal of a lifetime that the post-Madoff Wilpons have been given a pass while Major League Baseball was so active in removing Frank McCourt when he owned the Los Angeles Dodgers because he was broke, basically, but there's not that much difference. What's the story here? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's, it's not um, your financial wherewithal that matters in baseball, too, you know, clearly. So I think when the story of this era of baseball gets written, I think a chapter in it is going to be what Major League Baseball did to Mets fans by keeping the Wilpons, who don't have the financial wherewithal to own a baseball team anymore, clearly, in, uh, to, to allow them to remain uh, in ownership of one of the five most valuable franchises in the sport. Possibly one of the five most valuable franchises in any sport, a baseball team in New York. Come on. Yeah, and, and you know, Mets fans, we have to act like we're a small market team. Like, I'm just saying it right now. It's just like, yes, trade DeGrom, because the Mets cannot afford even to pay DeGrom as arbitration. And if you look at, like, things like Cots and Baseball Prospectus or, you know, whoever does the, the, the baseball contract stuff, you'll see a number for the Mets that looks, well, it's not that bad, but that's like with, you know, they're including all of David Wright's salary when we know that at least 75% of it is, is covered by insurance. 
they're counting things like uh, uh, Devin Mesorosco's uh, uh, contract, where where that's mostly paid by the by the Reds. You know, so when you add it all up, like it's well less than it actually seems, and even what it seems is middling. You know something else that you mentioned uh, the uh, this particular financial thing with uh, with McCourt and the Wilpons wasn't there some kind of allegations that uh, it was because they were buddy buddy with uh, with Bud Selig that the current Red Sox ownership group got the Boston Red Sox despite having the second best bid? Uh, you know I haven't heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, this is just the way baseball runs right now. It's just like a boys' club, like you know. It's, it's, it's almost like a variation of that old saw. Like every time when the player complains, every time I, I say uh, it's a business, you say it's a game. Every time I say it's a game, you say it's a business. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. Yes, it is. It's like, is it a business or not? Well, like you said, it's a business when they want it to be a business. It's a game when they want it to be a game. And don't get me started on stadium financing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, smoke will be coming out my ears and we'll have to cancel the show. Uh, what does it matter, though, to Mets fans or people listening to this podcast right now who are going, I don't care who owns the team. I don't care about any of this stuff. I don't want to know about the business of it. But it does matter to Mets fans in particular, and it does matter to baseball fans and fantasy players in general. The question is, how do you explain that? Well, you know, basically, I, I think the the um, minimum fiduciary responsibility of Major League Baseball to the fans of all of its teams is that the owners of all the teams have the financial wherewithal to own the teams. So um, whether or not then those owners decide to spend money, that's, that's a matter for public debate and recrimination and all that stuff. But it's really hard to get on the Mets ownership for not spending money because they don't have any money. So, you know, that puts you in a really tough position as a fan. Like, you know, that's why the tabloids don't get on the Mets for being cheap. Like, we, everybody knows. There's no money. What about guys like uh, this? the guy, I don't know his name, in Miami who bought the team with Derek Jeter, and then, uh, and then the first thing they do is set about dismantling everything and getting their payroll down to, you know, sort of triple-A levels, it seems, and... When you start reading the financial analysis of actions like this, it turns out that most of these teams turn a profit before they sell a ticket. Between the TV money and the uh, advanced media money and all of these other ancillary sources of income, they don't have to sell tickets. They're in the they're in the black before they do. And if they have poor attendance, they reach into some other pool of money that the good teams are are providing to support the bad ones. There's a lot about the finances of baseball that should irritate a lot of baseball fans. Definitely, you know, especially teams that aren't competing. And I think we've reached a point where um, I think analytics has, has been very detrimental here to this argument because I, I think the, the central conceit of analytics is that you can, you can smart your way into competing with, with, with a uh, middling payroll, that it's the decisions that you make that are more important than the actual capital that you have to invest in players. And I think that's just been proven to be a fallacy. I mean, people can point to different statistics, but, but you know, the teams that spend the most money are very good bets to make the playoffs, and the teams that don't are very poor bets to make the playoffs. Once you're in the playoffs, like if you're going to tell me how many different teams have won the World Series in this sport compared to that sport compared to this sport, that's, that's a totally different thing because we know that baseball playoffs are largely random events. Like you can't, you would need like a 26-game series to even have like 
the, the best team in baseball, um, or, or I guess it would have to be 27 games, to have, to have the, best, the best team of those two teams to even have, give them a, like a 51% chance to actually win the, 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 the series. And nobody's going to have a series of that length. So we just know. We, we all accept the winner of the World Series Sometimes it's the best team, but often is not, and that's just baseball. Especially since they started introducing more and more pathways in uh, the wild card and then the play-in game and breaking up divisions, so there's more and more teams in the tournament. It just increases the likelihood that the best team won't win uh, the whole thing. I remember the 116-win Seattle Mariners. Exactly, but it also creates, I think, a greater likelihood that the teams that actually invest the the most money in in player procurement, let's call it, and even the minor leagues and their international things, the things that they do with the slot money and the bonus money for the draft, the chances that they take, that they, uh, take there, those are the teams that are now going to have increasingly the best chance to actually make the postseason because there's just, you know, the, the 162-game season is going to make sure that the, that the quality teams um, are, are qualified for the tournament. Moving along, you've indicated that we should have done a better job seeing Mitch Haniger of Seattle and his potential to have the big season he's having in 2018. What were the signs that so many of us missed? Well, it was so obvious. I mean, yeah, 126 OPS plus. Like, I, I just hate myself for not being on that. It's kind of like the year, if you look at when Ben Zobris broke out, the year before, I think he had an 800 OPS and limited playing time. And even in, like, AL only, he wasn't on my radar then. And it was just, you know, how... Sometimes we we uh, we miss the forest for the trees, right? Like it's the easiest things that sometimes we just lose in the face of this mountainous volume of data. Yeah, I find uh, I find that's true. I find the data are interesting, but sometimes, again, uh, as you said, you you look at all this data and you parse it down to 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 the finest point of detail, and then you realize, hey, this guy hits a lot of line drives, and he's a good hitter. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, and the thing is, all you had to do was look at his OPS. The back of the baseball card would have told you to draft Hanager. So that's why I kicked myself. Finally, uh, you tweeted that you're at the point where you would ask a pitcher, if you were running a team, to dial it down on the fastball and o- only occasionally dial it up for critical situations. You called it the Justin Verlander model. Why do you think this is a better approach for pitchers? Well, we actually wrote an article about this, um, me and my uh, colleague at the journal, uh, Andrew Beaton. Uh, uh, we did a, a, a big piece on it where we actually talked to uh, uh, the doctors who performed the, those surgeries and who were experts and, and, and like, you know, the Tommy John ligament damage that's afflicting our game right now. And uh, also some of the people who are, you know, just the biomechanical guys. And the number one risk for injury is not, your, your actual velocity, although higher velocity is worse, uh, obviously. Um, but even more important than that is whether or not you're maxing out. So w- I needed to figure out a way where we could figure out which pitchers were maxing out. So what I did was I looked at the percentage of fastballs that were more than two miles an hour faster or slower than the a- pitcher's average speed. And to me, that was... Uh, the, the players who would have the higher percentages of, of that kind of variance, which in scouting parlance is like a grade lower or higher, 
I think that we could reasonably say that those pitchers are purposely dialing it up and dialing it down um, when needed. And it, the guys on that list were like Carlos Martinez, Chris Sale, Justin Verlander. Uh, they were guys that are able to uh, throw out a higher velocity, um, you know, and not suffer some of these catastrophic injuries that we've been seeing. So I, I think that it, it turned, and the doctors totally agreed that that was, uh, that our approach was sound and that this was a very important thing. So I think that when you have a guy who could throw 100 miles an hour, that he should mostly be throwing 95 miles an hour. Like, you're not getting that much utility value uh, throwing it as hard as you can on every pitch. We know, watching baseball back in the day, I know as a Mets fan, Tom Seaver wasn't, wasn't throwing his best fastballs to the bottom of the order. Now, maybe the problem today is there's not really there's as big of a gap between the best and the worst hitters as there used to be. But there's certainly some instances where you can just – you know, dial it down a little bit. Did you happen to notice any uh, pitchers or have at hand the names of any pitchers who didn't have that variance, which indicates that maybe they are constantly throwing max velocity or close to it and that we should be worried about? Well, Syndergaard was on the list and uh, at the bottom, and so was Michael Fulmer. In fact, most of the Mets pitchers were on the list. Now, the reason why I didn't really, I liked DeGrom, uh, into the year, and, and I said on Twitter that one of my reasons wa- was that he was in the sweet spot of age and and velocity. In other words, you know, he's old enough where where he's a little bit less likely to have um, a serious arm injury, and he also throws at a velocity where that 94, 95 mile an hour range where he's not really defying the physics of the human anatomy to the extent where you would expect an injury. So, uh, and that's, that's borne out. Now, obviously there was the rough patch where he had a little bit of uh, elbow problems, but that was from swinging the bat. You know, that wasn't even from pitching. Right. And, and if you watch DeGrom pitch, when he needs a strikeout, he throws 97 miles an hour. But he's usually sitting at like 94, 95. Now, that's what he's doing now. I talked to Ron Darling for the piece, too, and Darling said that that was something that they all did back in the day. Nobody was maxing out on every pitch. Could explain also why uh, some uh, so few pitchers get deep into games anymore and they have these rigid pitch counts because they know uh, maybe they, or they figured out that if you're going to throw maximum velocity every pitch, man, 100 is about as much as you can expect. Well, wouldn't it be ironic, Patrick, if one of the reasons why we have more arm injuries now than ever is because pitchers are throwing less innings and no longer have to pace themselves and are just maxing out on every pitch. So even though they're pitching less less innings, they're actually doing more damage to their arms. Wouldn't that be ironic? It would be ironic, Michael, and it would also be something I think that is borne out by what a lot of people already do think. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino from Yahoo. And uh, Michael, during the season, I like to ask our experts to end our segments by talking about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, Let's start with some boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the balance of 2018. Start in the American League. Who's a boon hitter you like for the balance of the season? Well, you know, obviously you're not going to get this guy on waivers, but I think uh, Stanton has an epic run in him. And his the data that I use from Inside Edge, their 24 statistics, shows that he's hitting a lot better than, than maybe his reputation right now, like a lot closer to what we would expect Stanton to be hitting. So I think it's inevitable that he's going to go on a home run run and maybe not be the second-best player in fantasy, like 
so many people were projecting, but definitely be a player who was a central component to a championship squad. Over to the National League, how about a hitter who's going to be a boon? Well, I want to say Goldschmidt because I was always like pro-Goldschmidt because his well-hit data had always been above 200 this entire year. Every time I looked it up, his well-hit data was good. So, But he's like just so red-hot right now. So I'll go a little bit of a deep cut here. We talked about Moran before as well, but a guy that's kind of like that is um, uh, Dietrich on the, on the Marlins. I think he was like 60th on my stats year-to-year in OPS. Uh, which which I don't think many people would expect. That definitely makes him rosterable in 12-team mixed leagues. To the mound, uh, back to the American League, who's a pitcher you think could be a boon? Uh, my um, American League pitcher who is a boon would be Carlos Carrasco. Uh, he's got a 36% chase percentage, according to Inside Edge. That's the highest in baseball. Well, it's actually tied with Jake DeGrom among active pitchers. So whenever you're in the conversation with DeGrom, I think that you are, you know, uh, fantasy baseball ace caliber. And I think a lot of people are kind of disappointed with Carrasco's season right now and don't consider him to be that, and I do. And finally, in the National League, who's a pitcher who's going to be a boon? Well, I'm going to say, I have two guys here. Seth Lugo is the rare A-plus pitcher in the, in the 24 inside edge stats. Uh, here are two things that jump out, and these are things that are, are kind of like obvious. I wish we had stats that are publicly available for, in these categories, but we don't. But 66% of, of hitters, uh, I, uh, 66% of the time when hitters are ahead of the count, Lugo gets those hitters out, and the league average is 55%. Okay, And 86% of the time when Lugo has hitters in, in two strike counts, he gets the out, and the league average is 75%. So Lugo is a guy who can get you out when he's behind and get you out when he's ahead, well above league average. Now, I know a lot of those stats are reliever-based, but I think Lugo also offers closer upside if he sticks in the pen and if he's in the rotation, like we saw last night against the Yankees, I think he's going to be good. And the other guy who's, this is more of a deep cut, Clayton Richard has been a lot better than everybody thought he was going to be, especially in strikeouts. And I think his fifth right now is right around four, so, you know, he should be on the radar, especially in deeper formats. I mean, I, I don't even think Richards is, Richard is that hard of a get, even in AL only. I mean, NL only. I'm sorry. Michael Salfino's Boons, uh, John Carlos Stanton of the Yankees, Derek Dietrich of Miami, Carlos Carrasco of Cleveland, and uh, take your pick, Seth Liu of the Mets, Clayton Richard of San Diego. Michael, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, how about, again, we'll start in the American League with a hitter who's going to be a Bane for his owners. I think everybody's expecting Brian Dozier to come back, but he's just been so bad this year. As well hit as 117. Again, the league average is 155. He's a C-minus hitter across the inside edge 24 stats. He's also poor this year at hitting pitches right down the middle. He's like a D-minus, D-plus there. That's, I mean, when they're putting it right down the middle and you can't hit it, I'm worried. Uh, last year, he was an A-minus hitter and had a well-hit average of about 200. Uh, you know, so much better than this year. And he's also not running. So, you know, I, I think if somebody's willing to give you you know, 80 or 90 cents on the dollar for, for Dozier based on your draft day price, you should take it. Am I missing something or forgetting something or misremembering? You, we talked about uh, how your memory goes when you get older, but was Dozier one of those guys who had vision issues and, and had some correction with pink, uh, pink uh, contact lenses? Or, one, am I, or am I getting the story wrong? 
Uh, that's not something I'm aware of, but it sounds like it could be, you know, it, what, if that is the case, then, then he needs to go back to the eye doctor. That's what I was wondering, if maybe there's vision problems there. Uh, in the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane? Uh, Ian Happ is just too much swing and miss for me. 41.9% of swings uh, miss, and the league average is 24%. I, I, you know, and plus, he's another guy you got to check every day to see if he's in the lineup. Uh, it's just, to me, it's not worth it. Over to the mound again in the American League. Who's a pitcher you think could be a bane? Green would be the guy that I'd be getting out of, and I would be getting into Jimenez. And, and you know, I would obviously be trying to trade Green because, he's, like you said, he's got a very impressive save total. But um, he's a guy that even with the saves, he's hurting you in elsewhere relative to what you would expect from a closer. And in the National League, a bane pitcher? I, you know... Quintana just has too many walks this year. Like th- that's the thing that kind of shocks me about him. I mean, where are you on Quintana? I've noticed the walks as well, and uh, my limited medical knowledge suggests that, uh, or I've been told that wildness indicates elbow problems, and lack of velocity indicates shoulder problems. And I wonder if that's something to do there. Right. Yeah, that would be my concern as well. You know, I think if somebody's expecting a bounce back. Um, you should you should trade him and and if you own Quintana, I don't think you should be counting on a resurgence in the second half. Michael Salfino's Baines, Brian Dozier of Minnesota, Ian Happ of the Cubs, Shane Green of Detroit, and Jose Quintana of the Cubs. Uh, Michael, tell us where listeners can catch up with you and stay in touch. Uh, well, I'm at, uh, on Twitter at Michael Salfino, tweeting about a wide variety of things. I also write about music and movies, so you know that stuff is in there as well. And um, you could read me at the Wall Street Journal and at 538 and for fantasy, uh, Yahoo Sports. So, um, you know, um, I'm, always, I'm always available on Twitter, too, if you have a question. And uh, just one man's opinion, but I think uh, if you're listening to this show and you appreciate smart analysis and really fine writing, you should be reading Michael Salfino for sure. Michael, it's been a pleasure, as always. Been too long. I'll try to make sure it's not so long the next time. Well, that's so kind of you, Patrick. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's always fun. You do a great job. Michael Salfino writes for Yahoo Sports, The Wall Street Journal, and other outlets. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Masternotes, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Jackson with four runs batted in. Sends a fly ball to center field and deep. That's going to be way back and that's going to be gone. Reggie Jackson is hitting his third home run of the game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, Patrick. It's been a, it's been a couple weeks. You had a little special episode last week. Yeah, my wife and I went into Toronto and uh, watched a, a concert and, uh, and a ball game, a pretty good game, as a matter of fact. And uh, yeah, we had a good time. It was nice to be away. Uh, you know, I, I got back, and one of the things I do, and I'm sure you're yeah, the same as I am, Todd, is I like to read what other people are saying about fantasy baseball and about baseball writ large. And I was reading an article uh, earlier this week in which the expert analyst said something to the effect that a certain hitting stat, uh, one of the newer ones, had stabilized, and I'm using his term, because the hitter had attained a certain amount of balls in player plate appearances or some some total of, uh, of experience. But then he started to make predictive calls on the player based on the stabilized rate because the stat in question was now stable. 
I don't think that's how these stabilization points should be used. And I remember you and I have talked about this earlier. How should we be looking at these so-called stabilization points? The classic stabilization points that are Russell Carlton, who, a.k.a. Pizza Cutter, first came up with, they, you know, I'm, I led the, the bandwagon of misinterpreting uh, as being predictive. They were designed to be backwards looking. And let's just say, you know, 100 plate appearances, it's actually closer to 60, was the stabilization point for contact rate. The idea was what you saw in the sample was real. So people then extrapolate, people also being me, extrapolated that, well, this is the player's new baseline skill level. And we projected accordingly. Even that was a bit of an error just because it's not forward-looking. What it means is the previous 60 plate appearances, uh, the, the batter faced enough pitchers and, and, and enough game situations that all the, you know, the luck bias had been fleshed out, and that was the player's true skill level over those 60 plate appearances. It does not mean that it's gonna, the next 60 and the next 60 and the next 60. It just meant what, we, what you see is what you get for that 60. Russell Carlton has come out and said, you know, he, had, he wanted these to be forward-looking, but they weren't. And he did yeah. sort of say, you know, the beginning, he was among, he, he also sort of misinterpreted, but he's been very, very, I will say vocal, vocal on the web, with, you know, typing very loudly, don't, you know, don't, don't make this mistake. You know, it's now been five or six years that he's been giving this message. I only got the message a couple of years ago, and apparently there's still people out there that haven't gotten the message yet. This seems to fly in the face of a lot of what we do in the projection business and looking at player performance. And I'm thinking of uh, Ron Chandler's dictum that once you display a skill, you own it. Does the skill ever set some kind of predictive, predictable level? Skills aren't stagnant, and they, it just it gives a good baseline. It gives a good beginning point to think about future, think about projections or future performance, however you want to look at it. But there's always fluctuation around it, and with batting average and hits, for instance, you mentioned you know contact rate. Well, actually, no, contact rate is is the skill. With you know batting average, what emanates from the contact rate, there's so much variance with just batted ball uh, luck or variance or that sort of thing. And now when you add the shift in, it adds a whole new new element to it. But um, yeah, you got to start somewhere. And a three-year or some people use a five-year baseline does give you a place to start but you just have to realize it's skills are not static it is the players get older they 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 mature the other end of the spectrum they just learn things video so very rare you know that's why you have to use a three-year average because if if it were stable you just use the previous year using a three-year tells you right then and there sort of built in that you don't know what it is but it has the best chance of falling somewhere in that range and even at that i i think the uh, the norm uh, for the marcel the monkey projections these are a very basic projection system in which i believe the weighting is 60 percent on the previous year 25 percent on the year previous to that and 15 on the year previous to that or some kind of variation on that so you want to weight the most recent season a little more heavily than past seasons but it, it does give you something to work with but i guess now the question is if we accept that the core underlying skills are not projectable from the so-called stabilization points, is the question, are they ever predictive? 
or just not at the stabilization points that Pizza Cutter or Russell Carlton set in that original article, which was much shorter, I think a lot of us thought at the <laughs> time than we expected. Uh, you know, certain things are stabilizing after 60 or 80 plate appearances that we were projecting from three-year weighted averages. Should we be more confident in that three-year weighted average, but still not entirely confident in it? With the new data, the new StatCast data, we're getting there as far as improving stabilization points because, you know, one thing, you know, we're able to further refine what we're looking at, further delineate skill from luck with the launch angle and the exit velocity and combining the two and a bunch of other things. Now, I've been trying to uh, keep up with some of the research on launch angle and exit velocity to see, because to me that's the next step is, you know, okay, the, 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 the contact rate and some of the more granular metrics that, that, that Russell Carlton looked at, we, you know, again, we're now refining even more. I think uh, they, the ultimate goal is to find a stabilization point for these, but we're not, unless I miss, I very well could have missed an article, and uh, our colleague Andy Andres, if he's listening, maybe he should let me know if, uh, if I've missed an article, because I'm sure he'd be into this sort of thing. Eno Saris, another guest in the show, would be another. Um, their, their work, they're getting there, but there just isn't enough data yet to just to definitively say something, you know, to definitively narrow down a number. Not just that, some of the years, some of the data they have has holes in it. And, you know, they, the stat cast at the infancy didn't capture all the numbers that it does now. So even though it's been around for a few years, some of the data isn't as reliable as you'd like for this sort of thing. So I think the goal is to get there, but we're just, uh, we're just not there yet. So we can see the data after a year, after two years, after three years, and say, well, we're leaning towards this and this and such and so, but we don't have enough data yet, uh, you know, from a statistical point of view, you know, to, to hit the gavel and say, this is it. You know, it makes it tough. I've seen there's pieces on the web that they they kind of do it really globally, but they're they're look they look at current performance and at the extremes of uh, people overproducing, underproducing, and see if it's predictive. And the general message is there's nothing predictive about current performance, which kind of you know puts the whole current rest of season projections that I know you guys do at HQ and I do. It puts the whole thing you know question mark how valid is it. You know, I, I, I'm sure if you talk to Ray, we, you know, we f he feels there's some validity to it, and I feel there's some validity to mine. How much, we don't know. Bottom line is the customers want it regardless, so we're doing it. But, you know, uh, what are we doing? Are we, are, we leading, are we misleading them? Are we helping them? I just, I just don't, I'm not 100% sure at this point. Well, that raises a whole host of questions. I know that Ron's benchmark has always been that the projections are 70% accurate. The problem is you don't know which 70% of the players are going to be accurate and which 30% uh, are not, and it changes from year to year, which really throws a monkey wrench into the works. But I'm curious, when you say uh, you talk about StatCast data and whether they are going to be shown to stabilize at certain points, what do you think that looks like that they're going to be able to say? Uh, uh, in my mind, I see something like... Uh, Aaron Judge, uh, his exit velocity averages um, 101 miles an hour or 99 miles an hour or, or whatever, 70% um, of the time. And we, we are confident at this point that that rate has stabilized so that in 70% of his plate appearances when he puts the ball into play, 
the the uh, average of those balls in play will be 100. But that still leaves a lot of room, doesn't it, for variance? Because a lot of them, if he averages 100, some of them will be 110, some of them will be 80. You know, there's that whole thing as well. So even if we do get to a point of having predictive value, we're still going to have to explain to users and to fantasy players out there, hey, this doesn't mean it's going to happen. It means the probability is it should happen, but there's still going to be a ton of variation in the actual performance. Yeah, and the other thing I'm finding from from looking at some of the current research on stability points, it's not as simple as contact rate, as you know, walk rate, as uh, hit rate, or whatever. It, it's it's integrating a bunch of them together, which those of us that do projections in this sort of nature, we need to have it automated, or else we can't do it. And it, that's sort of the, the the first thought I had was oy vey. I'm going to have to, you know, I'm as well as I know Excel, I'm going to have to take that to the next degree to try to figure out how I'm going to be able to incorporate this in the next couple of years if, uh, if if the data keeps going in the direction that it's going in. And, you, you know, we've talked about it in the past couple of weeks too, uh, the whole average exit velocity, you know, exactly what you're saying is some players, you know, average 90 every single time, and some players, when they score up the ball, the Jose Altuve or Xander Bogarts is going to be well over their average. But they've got such great play coverage when they're just, you know, dunking the ball in the right field. It's a much lower exit velocity. So, you know, it's, it's which is it? It's too, it's, 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 you know, it's kind of like we don't think of it the same way. But, uh, you know, a, a pitcher, his average velocity is whatever it is. We just assume it's we're talking about the fastball. But what if you were to give the average velocity of all their pitches? We'd say, I don't care. How many sliders is he throwing? How many changeups is he throwing? It means nothing to me. That's kind of kind of where we are with average exit velocity, although you know there's not quite the amount of uh, variability or not so much variability, but number of of events that could, not even events, but number of pitches. You know, there's not you know. So I it's, I, I guess it's not ex- an exact comparison, but it's that way. I mean, if if you tell me that you know that the Justin Verlander is averaging 93, I don't care how many. What's his fastball? That's what I want. That's more what I care. Or what's the delta between the pitches, sort of thing. But uh, we are getting there as far as the uh, the the in- incorporating all the different elements of the Statcast data, and you know th- we we always talk exit velocity, but launch angle is just so important too. And then you get a factor in, you know, when when this does become when these things do become reliable, there can you shift more, you know, defensively. Once all these numbers become reliable, you can better plan against it too. So I wonder how the reaction, you know, defensive shifts is this. Will they pick up or, or pull back once some of this other data becomes reliable? Because you know that's what the teams are looking at. We're you know we're looking for fantasy stuff. You know that's exactly what the teams are looking for is how to you know once this data is reliable, how can I better defend these guys? All this said, uh, Todd. Do you have any stats for hitters or for pitchers that you believe have stabilized at a certain point and provide predictive value that you can apply to doing your rest of season projections, to doing your preseason projections for coming years, all of this kind of stuff? Is any of it reliable enough for you right right now? I don't know about reliable. I mean, I guess I, I regress. So I think that it's, I think they're reliable enough for, you know, like I said, I fell on this bandwagon of, of calling this, you know, stable new skills, but even then, I was only regressing. So I don't, you know, I was making a mistake, but it may not have been a grave of an error. It may have actually been the right way to do it, because um, even if it was 60 plate appearances, I wasn't saying 50% is this new skill and 50% is my expected skill. 
I was still hedging more towards I'm relying on my three-year baseline and slowly folding in the expect the, the current skill just at a little bit faster rate for contact rate, which is you know 60 plate appearances at a time. I, I I do think that is the way to go. I just I don't know the exact numbers. I just I don't know. I'm I'm sort of I'm, I am I admit I'm guessing on the regression. How much is current and how much is uh, what you expected. So that is, a, it, I, maybe it's an educated guess. Before it was based on the plate appearances. So I, I, I still think that contact is a baseline skill, and I think you can adjust accordingly, especially if you can get even more granular and say, well, he's chasing less, or he's making better contact on high pitches or on fastballs, and all the this data is available. It's it's tough to do on an automated level. You, you make one of these adjustments on a on a major player. You sort of, I, I I do need to take the time to uh, back it up to see if there's anything to to it. But um yeah I, I am I am continuing to use this process. I've just softened the regression. I'm still I'm relying a little bit more on my initial uh, initial expectation. A little bit less on the current performance all uh, what I, you know on the flip side I am doing under the microscope more on I don't call them major players or, or players that have huge differences because you don't want to miss on those if there is something real or if you could think there's something real you need to you, you need to hit on it and and you know what this method isn't foolproof because I was high on Jonathan scope as an example because he'd been chasing less for the past couple of years Lo and behold, he's back to chasing again, and he's back to being, uh, you know, the guy that'll pop one over the fence, but is a batting average liability. So you never know what's going to happen, uh, you know, when when some of these guys with a new approach, when they have, you know, a, a, a string of a failure, a string when it's not working, do they revert back to their old ways, that sort of thing. And we're seeing it with Logan Morrison, right, and Justin Smoke, and some of these batted ball, elevated, you know, loft loft guys that Yonder Alonso. Are they able to sustain this? It, it, maybe they can sustain the approach, but it doesn't mean the results will continue to be as positive as they were either. And that's sort of the other element of it. Isn't isn't just uh, in season performance, but when we you know we see a three-year weighted average. I think a few people may have may have gone against that weighted average with Logan Morrison, with Yonder Alonso, and said, you know what, he's a new player. So instead of 50 or 60 percent, I'm going to up that weighted average to 70 percent this season, just because I think he, you know, I think he is this better player, and I'm, you know, incorporating two years of a different player. So I want to give more credit to the most recent seasons. Now that could turn out to be a mistake, but we'll know once enough players do this and have enough data how sustainable a new skill is from a year-to-year basis. And you mentioned scope, and you mentioned Justin Smoke as well. And uh, the thing that popped into my head is there's context differences as well. Right. Uh, Scope's on a Baltimore team that's struggling to score runs. Maybe he's just putting more pressure on himself to drive the ball, which encourages him to chase a little bit. And on uh, Justin Smoke's side, of course, he adjusted his entire approach to swing at fewer uh, balls out of the zone and uh, do more in the zone. That part of his his adapt adaptation to what they were doing to him has worked. He's still walking a ton. I think his on-base percentage is approaching 400. Mm-hmm. But his ability to put loft on the ball is going to be challenged by pitchers who know that's what he's trying to do, and they respond by pitching more up in the zone, uh, which forces him to try to reach a ball with an uppercut swing or whatever it is he's trying to accomplish. 
it's not like the pitchers just sit there and say, oh, well, he's figured us out. We'll just keep doing it. They adapt too. And uh, the, the game is constantly readapting and evolving, even on a single pitcher to single hitter model. It's, it seems like that also works against this idea that these rates are ever going to stabilize or provide a 100% true picture because we don't know what the opponent is doing at the same time. Oh, absolutely. And when this whole, when this whole uh, elevated you know, loft angle project uh, swing on the same plane as the ball came out, I came out with the theory and, and that, that not all fly balls are created equal, that the, in the, it, more for some pitchers that never gave up homers before suddenly giving up a ton of homers, and they're, they're throwing down in the zone, and that's why they didn't give up homers, but now they are. It's just their pitcher's natural uh, downward movement lent itself towards this uppercut swing, and now these pitchers, Masahiro Tanaka, Rick Porcello, uh, I think Sonny Gray to a certain extent, all have to now adjust back and figure out how to not give up these homers, and some have been more successful than others in doing it, and I think there have even some pitchers who are just fortuitously just th- throwing pitches in the, maybe in the middle of the zone that aren't as susceptible to this, vulnerable to this uppercut swing anymore. So it's making what used to be a mediocre pitcher at least that uh, that much better uh, kind of in, in an odd sort of way. So you're right, just as I mentioned that, you know, teams are using this data for defensive shifts. Uh, yeah, for, for sure, pitchers, you know, they have to have the skills capable in the, in, the, in the repertoire capable of combating this 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 swing revolution but absolutely there's pitchers out there that are countering it and uh and you know we mentioned two of the shifts as far you know when 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 some of these you know contact rates one thing but when you know batted ball when hard hit rate and 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 singles doubles and triples when all these things stabilize the shift is just because it, it, the very when you do these things variables need to stay the same it just suggests variables are constantly changing. And in a way, Todd, don't you think that's what makes it a game? That's yeah. what makes it fun. If we knew for an absolute fact that we could predict these players with a much greater degree of specificity, it would almost be like uh, we were going into our drafts knowing what last year's stats were and trying to draft according to that because the this year's stats would be so highly predictive. I, I like the fact that there's a human element in this because that's what makes the game fun in, in the final analysis. Yeah, and it also, and I say it, and I, I've mentioned it before, and I'll probably mention it a thousand more times. The, the, the more I understand projection theory, the more I understand valuation theory, the, the more I realize they're just secondary to uh, team structure and just so, you know putting together a good lineup, a, you know a balance and a, and a good roster, some of the other some of the other factors that go into it. They're important, but they're not the be all end all. Partly we might be the uh, victims of our own enthusiasm about our abilities is that we we uh, we tell our subscribers and our consumers, hey, we have the most accurate, projections here we have the uh, we have the real skinny here mm-hmm. and we raise their expectations that everything we provide to them is going to be hugely accurate when in fact i don't think there's a person in our business who looks at this projections and the, especially the theory of it and doesn't accept that there's going to be a real wide range of outcomes there's going to be a real wide range of accuracies and we all know that but at the same time we kind of in in a certain way imply to the consumers that we're way better at this than we really might be well i mean i'm going to sort of hurt my arm patting myself on the back here a bit i've never gone down the i've got the best projection system route i i've been asked on a number of different occasions to enter them into these contests about the accuracy 
I just don't believe it exists, and I also think it sends the wrong message. So I respectfully decline when people take them because they're available and put them in these things. I like to I, I like to think that my strength is all right. Here's the tool. Now here's how to use them, as opposed to you know I've got the most accurate accurate projection system out there because I don't know if I do. And I, I have not found a grading system. You mentioned Ron 70% before. That's kind of the uh, the industry uh, conventional thinking as far as accuracy. I don't even I, even that. I just don't know playing time, skills, luck, homers, OPS. What what are they grading? So uh, I I I try not to go down that road. That doesn't mean I don't look at my projections year to year. All right, I was off on. Man, I was really off on these 30 players, these 40 players. Is there a common thread of these 30 or 40 players sure, yeah, that, that I can see? And instead of looking granular, you know, did I miss? Are they all aging? Are they all young? Are, are they all speed guys? Are they all, you know, guys that increased contact rate last year but not this year to try to improve the, 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 the engine? But I, 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 I just don't believe in the whole best projections out there because to me it's – you know, you get 15 in a 15-team league. They can all have the best projections out there, but one guy's still going to agree that they're the best. One guy's going to think they're terrible, and 13 others are going to be somewhere in between. Isn't that uh, always the case? Uh, it, it's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about. And I hope that when people hear these kinds of discussions, they apply them to their own thinking and planning their uh, fantasy rosters, uh, except the imprecision. Uh, Ron <laughs> Chandler lately has been making a real point of this fact that there's a lot of uncertainty and you need to manage that rather than just f- fall for some marketing thing that says we don't have imprecision because everybody does. So Todd, it's always interesting to talk with you about this and pretty much everything. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Absolutely, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my desperate efforts to reach 60 points. My awful season in Tout American League has reached a new low. I have fallen under 40 points and into last place. Just for comparison's sake, the leader just climbed over 100 points. The reasons for this putrid performance are many, but come down mostly to a catastrophic draft in which I sat by waiting for inevitable bargains who never came, while almost every hitter worth anything was swept onto other rosters. It would be very easy at this time to sink into despondency, or perhaps to simply start ignoring this team and focusing attention instead on my other teams. But I don't have any other teams. As regular listeners to the Baseball HQ Radio podcast know, I stopped operating multiple teams a few years ago, when an MLB front office guy told a crowd at First Pitch Arizona that operating a bunch of teams is emphatically not recreating the Major League front office experience, because real general managers don't have several teams to choose from every year. So I'm stuck with my bad team having a really bad year. That said, I'm determined to keep trying. In particular, I'm going to try to figure a way back to 60 points. In the tout leagues, every point under 60 costs an owner $10 of fab for next year's league. So if I don't improve at all, I will start the year with about 800 bidding units to everyone else's 1,000. That's a really significant handicap. And the last thing I need is another handicap to go along with general incompetence. The first thing I did was look at where I might gain ground. 
I'm dead bottom in all the hitting categories, but I see some opportunities in stolen bases and on-base percentage on the hitting side, and ERA whip wins and saves on the pitching side. Let's start with stolen bases. If I could add 20 stolen bases over my current projected rate, it would mean 7 extra points in the category. If I can get 35 extra stolen bases, I can pick up 9 points, and I could even do a little better than that. I'll get some help at the end of this month with the return of Jorge Polanco, who stole 13 bases last year and just under 500 at-bats. He should be able to get me 8 or so in the 300 at-bats he should get. I've also made a deal to pick up D. Gordon, as I'll explain a little later. His 25 or more projected stolen bases are obviously going to be huge for me. On-base percentage. In my attempts to make deals, I'm going to be looking for on-base help, and I can hope to do some what they call addition by subtraction by dealing away some of my lower on-base guys, even if I don't get any super high on-base guys in return. I think I have an okay shot at picking up two points in on-base percentage with an outside chance at getting three. Over to the pitching side and the decimals. In ERA and WHIP, I've always believed that any fantasy owner can make big gains in the decimal categories, again as much by subtracting bad as by adding good, though ideally both. A 0.20 improvement in ERA would bump me three points, and it seems like I could do that. WHIP might be a little tougher. I'll need a gain of about .020 to gain a single point and .040 to gain two. Of course, there's an added advantage. The teams I'm chasing can move backwards in the categories as well as I can move forwards. Wins. I don't think I'm going to be super active chasing wins. I'm projected to get 4.5 points in the category, but just 3 more wins would bump that to 8 points, and 10 wins extra would hoist me all the way to 11. I'm not a believer in chasing wins, as I said, but I will if I can. But I have to say I see a few points here just by being lucky and accepting random variants. And finally, saves. This is pretty simple. If I could add 6 saves, I could get an extra point. If I could add 14, I'd get 3. The trouble is, nobody in my league is likely to be dealing saves, and the chances of snabbing a new closer through the fab free agent route seem somewhat remote. You can bet I'll be looking, and you can bet I'll be asking, though. I have already made one deal. I sent Justin Smoke, Marwin Gonzalez, and Jake Odorizzi to Doug Dennis, and I received D. Gordon, Joe Maurer, and Michael Givens. This was a classic win-win deal. The big gain for me will obviously be Gordon's 25 projected steals, but I expect a useful boost in on-base percentage with Maurer out on-basing Smoke by 25 to 30 points, although in fewer plate appearances, and Gordon out on-basing Marwin by 20 points or so in more plate appearances. In exchange, Doug gets Smoke's home runs and, to a lesser extent, Gonzalez's home runs, which should shoot him all the way from 6 points to 12 in the home run race, and the slight decline in on-base percentage doesn't figure to hurt him there, where he's on something of an island. Trading Odorizzi might cost me wins and give some to Doug, but Givens could get me a win or three in his setup role. I know I'm going to also lose 45 or so strikeouts, which won't cost me any points as currently projected. I figure to get a projected ERA improvement from around 4 even to 395, within striking distance of picking up 2 points, and a projected whip improvement from 126 to 123, a 1 point gain with room for more. Givens also has an outside shot at some saves, if Baltimore trades away their current experienced save guys, as rumor has it they might. 
As you might see, I have a perverse advantage in being as dead as disco in the power categories. I can trade my remaining homers and RBIs to get help in other categories because I literally have nothing more to lose. And in that, I'm doubly fortunate because the home run category is really tight in our league, with a lot of the title contenders in position to make big jumps in the category if they can pick up some added SWAT. I've already traded one power guy in smoke, and I still have Adam Jones and the returning Avisail Garcia ready to go into my sale bin. I already made an offer to deal Jones, and I have to be frank, I was a little surprised the other guy just didn't jump right at the opportunity. This could still happen. He says he's going to get back to me. That would be a win-win, too. I might even deal Yoan Moncada and his balanced projection of 11 projected home runs and 11 projected stolen bases if I could get back another stolen base stud with a projected on base north of Moncada's 325. I know that's not going to be easy. I understand that I'm in bad shape here and more than a little desperate, but I still feel like I owe it to myself and my league mates to keep trying. So wish me luck. And if you're reading this and you're in my league and you're looking for some home runs, hey, Get in touch. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal and other media outlets. Michael is one of the finest analysts in this business and a thoughtful and articulate guest here on Baseball HQ Radio. So happens he's also a great dinner companion if you ever have the chance. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you get your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.